I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I will be very careful by sling and stone. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football. I like football season all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson. We're back previewing the 2022 NFL season. We've made it three quarters of the way through this through the league here, Sam. Mm-hmm. It's on to the Wests, the AFC and the A- NFC West here today. The Wests. The Wests. Yeah. Multiple West True. divisions. The Western divisions. Yep. We're doing that today. You ready to go? Yeah. All right, man. How's everything going? Good. A uh, little charity update. We are up to $852 raised for needs uh, who create, who not create, who help facilitate the payment, the cost of service dogs for people. Because apparently getting a service dog costs upwards of $17,000 and then another forty grand to train the damn thing. And obviously that's pretty freaking expensive. So we've got a bunch of people donating. We appreciate every single donation that comes in, however big or small. And a reminder that you or I or both are donating to each one of these charity things as well as just begging people for money for a good cause. That's right. Thank you to everybody. And as soon as we hit our goal, I'm going to break out the old, uh, break out the cannon, fire up 60 miles an hour. Sam D. Johnson. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's you up there. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to see you throw. I need a baseball. That's probably if we can do it by next Friday. I could probably sneak you on to Great American with me for my major league debut. Is there a uh, is is there a a standard ball that we need to use for this? Because there appears to be quite a range in price for these things. Yeah. Well, the major league ball is probably most expensive. Yeah. Um, You can get your classic. Well, maybe not you, but do you know people that have one of these? You know, a spare one? Because they must go through a lot of these things, right? We had a um, I had a former teammate steal a whole lot of major <laughs> like league baseballs from spring training and, yeah. and then flip them on uh, eBay. eBay. Right. Yes. I mean, obviously, hot. you wouldn't have had the access given no. your career. But no, we would um, we use would the subtly, same balls? The minor well, leagues, they, or they got like, you get like a lower down level. So the minor league ball is like a, um, a softer version of the major league ball. Softer. Usually. A uh, little bit higher seam huh. in the minor league ball. The major league ball has got a pretty tight seam. The ball changes a lot, though, too, year to year. The balls are also tested, by the way, right here. UMass Lowell. I'm rocking my <laughs> UMass Lowell. We have, like, the foremost baseball testing facility in the world. Yeah? Right there at UMass Lowell. Um, what? what? <laughs> rocking, rocking it, my, uh, my alma mater here. Is that, like, a, just, like, a robot arm and a stick? What? Um, I'm not actually, I've actually never it. been there. I've never been into the facility. Because that doesn't feel like a tremendously taxing thing, test baseballs. Yeah, you get them hit. You just you get them hit, so you just you understand like how hard you know the ball gets right. hit and all that. But stuff. but like the facility feels like it should just be like a t-ball holder and a, a it a might bat be. on a stick. It might be. I never actually went down there to uh, to check it out. But anyway, what I'm saying is I don't want to pay like fifty dollars, whatever it is, for an official. It doesn't major really league matter. Ball. I mean, Somebody, I need a ball. If you get a major league ball with tighter seams, you might throw it a little bit harder. Oh, then let's do that then. Yeah. yeah, the diamond might have some bigger seams that might cut up your fingers a little bit. You know, if you throw cut too much, cut up your yeah, fingers. Yeah, you blisters, blister issues. Blisters this was like good. when you were telling me that you know, if I tried to catch one of your pitches, it would break my thumb through the giant fluffy mitt thing. Yeah, we're talking I'm percentage not, points here. I'm not. I don't think I'm buying anything you're selling when it comes to baseball anymore. 
Even if Think I'm going into the UMass Lowell Hall of Fame? Even, even then, yes. With our with my teammates, of course. Of course, yeah, not just you. We're gonna celebrate the 0102 UMass Lowell baseball team. It's about damn time. Going to the Hall of Fame. Anyway. Yeah. You ready to go? Mm-hmm. Get ready to go with the West? Go check out Sam's pin tweet at PFF. Yes. Underscore. Or the Sam. description of this podcast on YouTube or audio, you'll find the GoFundMe. I guess we could also kick it off by saying the best place to play fantasy football this summer is Underdog Fantasy. Their Best Ball Mania tournament has $10 million in total prizes, and the best part is you just draft your fantasy football team, and that's it. There's no waivers, no trades, no in-season management. Underdog gives you your best score each week of the season, and the highest scores at the end of the year win. It is the best time to draft right now. Join Underdog. Take your shot at a million-dollar draft. Strategically, get those high upside players because it is – best ball that's how you want to do it underdog's going to double your first deposit this is the big one double it when you play deposit up to 100 dollars when you sign up with the promo code pff and if you play 10 of those dollars using the promo code pff you get a free pff subscription which happens to now be pff plus so what are you waiting for head to underdogfantasy.com or the app store play 10 dollars with code pff and draft your best ball mania team today all right man well we're going to go through the afc and the nfc west divisions let's start with the denver broncos this is it they got a quarterback yep the denver broncos we've been sitting here for two years saying pretty good roster love what they've done defensively and like the playmakers that they've added offensively and all this fun stuff now russell wilson comes in last year it was teddy bridgewater the year before that was pretty much drew lock so they should be much better yeah what are we expecting from the broncos yeah, I mean, obviously they should be dramatically better. Uh, the question is going to be how much better. And I've I've kind of been all over the map on this over the course of the off season. You know, the everybody's initial um, reaction is, "Wow, Denver getting an amazing quarterback. We're we're golden. This is going to be a we're great. Jerry Judy to the moon. Cortland Sutton, the draft star. Everything's going to be incredible." And then the more you think about it, the more you're like, "Yeah." We're not really getting Russell Wilson at his very peak, though. Um, obviously, coming off an injured, the first real injury he's had in the NFL. Um, missed time, wasn't playing particularly well last season, even outside of the injury. And that's been a bit of a downswing from his two, two-and-a-half-year period where he was one of the genuinely best quarterbacks in the NFL, PFF grades of 90 and all those kinds of things. So Wilson's grading and I think overall performance has kind of been up and down to three different levels, really. And the question is, which version are Denver getting? And how much of the let Russ cook thing was just a w- an easy way of beating Pete Carroll as you know the old dinosaur coach who wasn't adjusting to the modern era? And how much of it is actually kind of inherent in the way Russell Wilson plays football? And can you know Nathaniel Hackett's offense come in there and do something different? Or is this part of the deal with Russell Wilson? I started off thinking that may be a concern. And then the closer we get to actual football, I'm kind of swinging back in the other direction now and saying, you know what, there may be like a limit and a ceiling to this, but Russell Wilson plus Jerry Judy plus Cortland Sutton, it's just going to be fireworks anyway. So to hell with it. I'm curious about a lot of things here. First off, Russell Wilson, the last year and a half of grading. Do you want the quick history? Sure. As we, as we do it. History. There was a point, I, I would say, you know, we talked about, we talk about tiered quarterbacks all the time here. I think for the majority of Russell Wilson's career, he was a pretty good tier two quarterback. That's a guy that's in the top eight, probably not in the top four, uh, guy you can win with, guy that's generally going to elevate your team above where they should be, right? But above the Matt Ryan inflection point. Mm-hmm. 
there was a point where it looked like he was ready to take the next step. Okay, Brady was declining for a year, and Rodgers was kind of declining a little bit, and those guys are getting old anyway. Russ was ready to jump up into that next group, the tier with Mahomes, where it might have only been Mahomes for a short period of time. And for maybe a year and a half, that's what we saw from Russell Wilson. In the beginning of 2020, he had a 95 PFF grade, on pace to be the highest graded single season we've ever seen for the first half of the year. He was on pace to set the touchdown record. He was on pace for a lot of stuff. And since that point, it's pretty much all fallen apart. So my big question is, did he just, was that just the ebbs and flows from a data perspective? He just had this high and he's just come back down to earth and he's still this tier two quarterback. When you, when you balance it out, it's a tier two type of guy. Or did he legitimately drop off? Because the last year and a half, he's been ranked like between 15th and 20th in PFF grades he's never been really that low for this long of a period of time and then you say okay there was an injury in the middle of it last year there was a new scheme in the middle of it last year so how much do you attribute it to this to this other stuff right um so where so which Russell Wilson are you getting because it really has been over the last three years night and day type of performance from Russ one other question I have is I think his athleticism probably looked a little bit off last year right like like he had lost a half step so if he loses the ability to maybe just escape he was just wasn't escaping as many pockets you know if he loses a half step of escapability what does that do for Russell Wilson's game because that was part of what had always separated him and made him special one of the anonymous uh whatever is in Mike Sando's quarterback tears article was talking about Russell needs to watch his weight get a bit chunky I mean don't we all don't we all? Maybe. I mean, we're not putting a million dollars a year into body recovery and whatever else he's doing. That's true. It feels like if I was spending that kind of money and had that kind of free time, I, I might not be struggling with the weight as much. Was that his nice way of saying he'd lost half a step last year? I, maybe. Yeah. I mean, maybe those are the same thing. Yeah. Um, I think I'm coming to that back, or I'm settling on the idea, though, of it being just a net massive win. And maybe there is, you know, maybe we, are, we do have a ceiling to how good Russell Wilson can be because of the way he plays the game and the sort of limitations that he places on himself in terms of efficiency. But it, it doesn't matter. Like, it's still such a huge jump forward from where they've been that it's going to make them a contender. Oh, oh look. That, so let me, let me just finish the one last question about Russ and then say, overall, Broncos fans should be happy. But I think he's got to answer these three questions, right? Like, what is he elite tier two is he is he really falling off has he lost a half step and then the other question about let russ cook what was was seattle not letting him cook because they knew something about him they saw him in action they they thought this isn't the best for russell wilson the quarterback or was it just pete pete carroll's a dinosaur conservative and he wants to run the ball right so we want to learn those things um because it might not be the best thing to say, Russell Wilson, hey, go play the game like Tom Brady or Drew Brees or um, even Patrick Mahomes, right, where you start certain games by throwing the ball 20 times. Maybe that isn't the best way for Russell Wilson to succeed and stay healthy and, and move the ball. So those are three big question marks. All that said, he should be much better than what they've had in Denver the last few years. And now I think we will, unfortunately, Tim Patrick's hurt, but we will get to see the potential of your guy, Jerry Judy, and hopefully a healthy KJ Hamler and a and a healthier Cortland Sutton. That receiving core with Russell Wilson can be very very good. It's it's a tremendously fun receiving core. Obviously, the the first three guys are the important ones: Tim Patrick, Hurt, but Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy, KJ Hamler should be the primary three players that are actually really well balanced as a group, as well as good and dangerous. 
Jerry Judy is the um, the guy that wins with separation and route running and has shown that he wins a lot from the slot as well, which is handy. Cortland Sutton is the guy with the best X receiver, sort of alpha number one type of skill set. And then KJ Hamler is just this incredible deep threat dynamo that can run deep, I think, outside as well as in the slot, but that's to be determined. Um, you also have Kendall Hill, Hill, yeah, Kendall Hinton still on the roster after that uh, the stint of playing quarterback that Former one quarterback. time. Yeah. Frankly, I think that man should have a lifetime roster spot for that game. Just he's always on the roster until he retires. Like uh, and then they also have Travis Fulgham, who remember for like four weeks looked like New Hopkins, and then never again. <laughs> never saw him again. Receiver evaluation just drives me crazy sometimes. Fulgham was a guy people kind of liked coming out of college, and he just wasn't good until that four week stretch, five week stretch with Philly, right? I mean, that was Where it. He looked amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes with receivers, it's like, oh, this guy, he just needed an opportunity. Hmm. All right, well. And sometimes it's true. And then other times you, it just happens for four weeks and then the guy disappears again. again. Um, it is, it's an intriguing offense. Uh, are there still questions about the offensive line, right? I mean, this is. Well, I think they've done the perfect job of creeping back toward average and then a little bit beyond. Like, that should be a solid average offensive line. It's not going to be amazing, but it's a hell of a lot better than any that's been in front of Russell Wilson before. I think Russ has certainly not had – he's not had good offensive lines in Seattle. At the same time, even in the PFF system that does our best to separate the quarterback from the offensive line, yeah, you know, he makes things a little bit more difficult the way he holds onto the ball. So we will see if if the pressure rate is still pretty high for Russell Wilson – uh, the, the thing that would offset that, though, is if he does truly embrace a new offensive system with Nathaniel Hackett, right? Is this, is this really going to be uh, more Packers-y, quick passing game and all that stuff? And Rodgers holds the ball a lot, too. But they have a percentage of plays where pressure is pretty much impossible in this system. The, the percentage of plays where the ball is just out so quick, doesn't matter who you have up front. And that's always kind of been the balance that Rodgers and the Packers have had quick passing game but also the ability to get the ball down the field and make those special plays I I just want to see how Russ you know manages that balance that's always been one of the questions taking negative plays versus getting rid of the ball but also having the ability to to make the special that has made Russell Wilson special through the years yeah the bigger question to me is not like it's it's if he embraces that what happens I I'm less interested in whether or not he'll actually do that you know, whether or not the offense will ask him to do that, but more if he does, and if Russell Wilson tries to play with more of this quick game stuff, is he efficient and good enough at that stuff to make it worth it? Because this is, I, I feel with Russell Wilson a little bit like I did with Cam Newton, which is in order to maximize the player they can be, and to be clear, I think Russell Wilson is a much better quarterback than Cam Newton was for his career. Agreed. But in order to maximize that player, I think you kind of have to lean into the unique aspects of how he plays rather than try and modify the way they play to sort of make up for the, de- for the deficiencies. So the problem with Cam Newton was that he was a generally inaccurate quarterback. And this is true of Carson Wentz as well, which is, you know, which doesn't mean that he can't, you know, thread an absolute needle every now and again, or that he doesn't make amazing throws or all these things. It's that when you count up 600 dropbacks, he's going to have way more misses than Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady or whoever, right? He's not in, he's a more inaccurate quarterback than those guys. So for years, Carolina went through three or four different iterations of trying to go, well, okay, how do we make that better? Well, let's have him throw a whole bunch of shorter passes because those are higher completion rate and he'll be more accurate. 
Like, yeah, but the problem is it doesn't really actually make it more accurate. It just means that you're taking away how valuable each pass attempt is or reducing it. So overall, you're having the opposite effect of the one you want it to have. Same thing, which is like, let's feature Christian McCaffrey. Same idea, right? You're just making the throws less valuable. You're not actually changing how accurate he is. So with Russell Wilson, I think you have a similar deal, which is it's not that he's not accurate, but it's that he doesn't do as well with the quick game stuff and doesn't just isn't as efficient with that, whereas his, he's amazing. Probably the, he's the best deep ball thrower in the NFL. And he's very good at running around, buying time, finding himself a, a vision lane and delivering a 50-yard strike to somebody. Now, if you try and lean into the quick game stuff, what you're doing is changing the balance between the really high-value plays that are not as efficient to ones that are more efficient but he's not as good at. And I think overall that's a net loss to the general play of Russell Wilson. That was always my question with like the, um, the analytics nerds, our friends, um, saying, hey, you got to let Russ cook, right? You know, this, this theory of, well, when he passes – things are more efficient and they're better, therefore pass more. Is he more efficient per play in part because Seattle always really played to his strengths for the most part. Let him run more play action. Let him run deeper deeper, deeper routes down the field so that he could get the ball down the field. You, it, it's not as simple as just do that more often. You literally can't just throw deep passes all the time. That You yeah. will get sacked eight times a game. You will get killed. So you do have to find that balance. And the very best quarterbacks in NFL history, I think, have this incredible balance of quick game, intermediate game, deep game, play action, no play action. They were efficient on third down, efficient on early downs. They could really do it all and attack every which way. Um, so, you know, can can Russell Wilson round out his game here this year? Uh, from a backfield standpoint, we'll talk running backs for the first time in these previews maybe. Uh, Javante Williams, Melvin Gordon. It seems like they're going to be a one-two punch, but I think we'll see a lot more of Javante Williams this year because he is one of the best tackle breakers in the NFL already. Um, so just keep an eye on that. That's the extent of our running back discussion. Nice. Uh, defensively, will they miss Vic Fangio? I think is my other question. Because sure. on paper, it looks pretty good. They've done some nice things in the secondary, expecting a big year from Patrick Sertan in year two here. Yep. Ronald Darby opposite him. But a big part of us liking Denver the last couple of years is Vic Fangio now has, maybe not his entire career, but his recent career is a pretty good run of elevating defenses. Mm -hmm. And now a lot of the NFL's, trying to emulate what Vic Fangio's done defensively. So you lose that aspect of it. So we're looking at the players, and they've generally performed pretty well the last couple of years, but you're losing a defensive coordinator who was the head coach, and you know that's going to be a factor as well. Yeah, I think it will. Um, I think there are enough elements on this defense that should be better this year that it might offset that and, and be okay. Obviously, we're expecting this breakout season from Patrick Sertan. I think there's reason to expect that to happen, given what he showed as a rookie. Um, the other thing I think that has the chance to be a lot better is we might get some real pass rush for the first time you know, since trading away Von Miller, essentially. And even with Von Miller, it had been a like he'd been injured and he hadn't been himself for a while. We hadn't really seen the true Von Miller. But they won the Randy Gregory offseason drama. You know, Dallas screwed up the contract. Denver jumped in, got him. So Randy Gregory comes in. Now, look, Randy Gregory isn't without questions, but... The last thing we saw was him being a really high-level pass rusher. Um, Bradley Chubb may never become that guy, but they drafted Nick Benito, who was one of my favorite players in the draft, has the best two-year pass rushing profile of any pass rusher in this draft class. When you look at his tape, he's so quick, so fluid of movement. He 
he has the closest kind of you know inside moves and and swerves to von miller in this draft class now he's he's not going to be von miller but there's every chance that nick benito can come in and be you know the designated pass rusher alongside randy gregory and make a real impact yeah i'm intrigued by what, what they do from a pass rush standpoint as well you know with um Bradley Chubb, Randy Gregory, and Benito, as you mentioned, Malik Reed. They've got some pieces to maybe move around there. The defensive line looks solid, unspectacular. Their strength would have to be in the secondary, though. You, you have an, Kareem Jackson's getting kind of old there at safety. I don't yep. know if he's what he has left, but him and Justin Simmons, Sertan, Ronald Darby, Kwan Williams have been one of the best slots in the league over the last couple of years. So, um, decent, decent pieces, I think, there for the Broncos. Their whole season, I mean, I think they're better. You know, they're a better team. Their whole season's going to come down to, like, a few plays here and there, right? I think they're going to play some close games in the division, and it's it's a, all we're going to talk about today is how both of the West divisions are so tough. Are the Broncos going to be one of those teams that's very good? They're better. They're solid across the board. They're upgr- they've upgraded a quarterback, but they're the team that comes out with only eight or nine wins. Like, it could be. This yeah, I, I mean, I think they'll be good enough that they're they're in the playoffs. The concern for them is going to be the stuff we're talking about with Russell Wilson. Like, where does he land on that scale between good, very good, and amazing, Which all of which he's capable of? That's the difference between the playoffs, the playoffs and winning, and a genuine Super Bowl contender. Um, because just the way the AFC is right now, I don't know that you can win by just being good. You know, like, so... yeah. Like over-under is 10, by the way. We're looking at 10 wins, DraftKings.com. 10 wins is the over-under for Denver right now. Even last year, look at the way the playoffs panned out in the AFC. Like, Justin Herbert playing out of his freaking mind couldn't even get in. Um, you got Joe Burrow playing incredibly. Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen dueling as one of the most insane games that the NFL has ever seen. Um, eventually, they lose out to Joe Burrow. Like, if you had just a standard good quarterback say ryan Tannehill. you know like if you were one of those teams that had a ryan Tannehill or if you transplanted kirk cousins into the afc playoff picture i mean forget about it you just you weren't you, you couldn't win and i think that's we're looking at the same thing like denver just got russell wilson that puts them back in the playoffs in my eyes you go from drew lock teddy bridgewater to russell wilson you're back in playoff contention but playoff contention versus can you win a super bowl is well, can you go toe-to-toe with Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow? Because that's not going anywhere. In fact, if anything, it's getting harder. So that, I think, is what's going to determine their season. So what do you think? Over or under 10 here for the Broncos? Uh, I, why is, I keep wanting to give them the number that the over-under is. What happened to half games to stop that happening? I, they'll win 10 games. Therefore, push. Don't take it. Yeah. Wow. I would, if I have to go over or under, I think I'd lean under here for the Broncos. Yeah, well, I would as well, but I don't think they'll go under. I think they'll go 10. I think they'll win 10. Yes. They just feel like a good 10 and 17. Uh-huh. They could also go over. Just saying. They could. They could. All right. We're going to move on to the Kansas City Chiefs. But first, gentlemen, all men strive for gold in their life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. However, there's a certain type of man who goes the extra mile. He walks the confidence of an eagle and giggles in the face of danger. He's a big, hairless winning machine. And when he unzips his pants, he sees platinum, Sam. That's right, the man, uh, Manscaped. Hmm? They would like to introduce you to your best and biggest ultimate hygiene bundle yet, the Platinum Package 4.0. 
I'll just redo the read without the stutter. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll fix it. Perfect. Manscaped is the leader in below-the-waist grooming. Now trust them with the whole shebang. Now join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code PFF. Manscaped's brand-new Platinum Package 4.0 is the biggest bundle they've ever offered, giving you a bulk discount on Manscaped's top products. Whoever set up this sheet. They sent us an yeah. awesome care package of they all They sent stuff. us all of the stuff over here at PFF offices. There's you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. I'll let Sam show everything in a second here. I, it's I, 20% off plus free shipping with manscaped.com. Use the code PFF. It's time you enjoyed the finer things in life and get yourself a platinum package for your platinum package. We've got, a, we've got hydrating body spray here, which I think is deodorant. Uh, oh, I didn't see that. I'll... I'll take that home. We got this oh, thing. Is that what you're taking home? The ultra smooth package, which has crop exfoliator, gentle exfoliant for the groin area, crop gel, the crop shaver. Did you grab this? Uh, I thought I did, but I don't see it anywhere. You grabbed the shampoo in. and conditioner. And then we got this thing, which has got all kinds of stuff in it. Like a giant box full of stuff. Where's my, where's my camera? Where's, where's my solo, my close-up? Hey, camera one. Can we get camera cool one on Sam? So Awesome. From, uh, from Manscaped. They hooked us up. And look, there's another one of the uh, the great travel bags in here, which I now have three That's your of. favorite, yeah, the travel I mean, bags. I've got three of these things. I will try the two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. I think you should. So I got that coming home with me. So go check it out, manscaped.com. Promo code is PFF. All right, we're on to the Chiefs. The, the chefs. The chefs. Great googly moogly. All right, let's go. Let's go Chiefs here, man. What's going to happen this year? Over-under is probably 100 for the Chiefs. People still believe in. Yeah, which Tyree Kill. Tyree Kill's the story. Right. It's, you know. Ten and a half. They, same story your, minus Tyree point. Kill. What does it look like? That, that, that's the Chiefs in a nutshell. Look, I don't want to exhaust a lot of our offseason conversation, but in a nutshell, I think Tyree Kill, special receiver, what he does production-wise, what he does for the offense. We've never seen Patrick Mahomes without Tyree Kill plus Travis Kelsey for an extended period of time the most uncoverable receiver, uncoverable tight end of their era. I think that's that's how I would describe both of those guys. So we've never seen it for an extended period of time. It doesn't mean that Patrick Mahomes can't be, isn't special or that he can't be awesome without them, but he's got to, he's going to have to play better. I mean, just for the offense to maintain, like they have to get worse probably before they get better, don't they? Well, they need to show that they can play in a way that they, they don't like playing. So, the Chiefs have had one of the most explosive offenses as well as just one of the best since Patrick Mahomes came into the lineup. And that's also with Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey and, and all that together. Now teams have started to show them something that takes that away. You know, the two high coverage shells that we saw so much last year that were essentially there because of Tyreek Hill. Those caused Kansas City problems. Now, look, problems is a relative term. They still led the NFL in EPA per play. They still arguably had the best offense in the league. But you could see that they were visibly caused issues by those defenses. And they would start games with you know, the perfect patient offense and marching methodically down the field like vintage Tom Brady or Peyton Manning. And then they'd make a mistake. And when they made the mistake, you could see them all tighten up and more mistakes would follow and it would get worse. So they did a good job of modifying the offense. As I said, it was still successful. And Tyreek Hill's average at the target tumbled and they were using him more as an underneath sort of lateral weapon. But now they need to do it again without Tyreek Hill, and they need, they need to show that they can do it without making the mistakes because those are important. Again, we're talking fine margins. This is a 
Super Bowl contending team. So those mistakes are going to be the difference between winning and losing in crunch time against those juggernauts in the AFC. So I want to see, can they, have they figured out over the course of the offseason how to do that game plan, which was fine, but not screw up, like execute it without making mistakes. I'm going to say they're not going to need to execute that game plan as much. Okay, let, let me let me pose this question to you. Were teams playing softer coverages because they want to make Patrick Mahomes more conservative and, and more patient, and they, and they think that's the way you attack Patrick Mahomes, or was it because they just didn't want to try to match up with Tyree Kill and his speed and they're worried about the deep ball? It can be a combination of both, but I think the Chiefs might still see – they might go back to a whole bunch of single coverage, seeing single coverage, and it, and – I might look at this Chiefs receiving core this year and say, I'll take my chances playing man. You know, I'm not that afraid of, maybe I'll be more afraid of Sky Moore when we see more from him mm. and Michael Hardman and Juju Smith-Schuster. But I think more teams are going to say, sure, we can match up with these guys. We'll keep a safety over the top for Valdez Scantling and we'll give a little extra help to Travis Kelsey underneath, maybe a lot more attention to Travis Kelsey and make the receivers beat us. But we might see more man coverage. So... Did they make? Did defenses make the Chiefs play that way because they wanted Mahomes to play this patient game? He had the fourth lowest average depth of target in the NFL last year. Patrick Mahomes, hmm. lower average depth of target than Rodgers has ever had, than Brady has ever had, all of that stuff. It was a dink and dunk offense because of the way defenses played them. So will teams still attack them the same way or say, ah, we're not afraid of this receiving core anymore. Let's, let's go challenge them. No, I, I think they start off playing the same defenses. I think it did start because of Tyreek Hill and, you know, the, the, the Mahomes connection. It's not like Tyreek Hill just on his own does that. Of course. But I think that's why they started it. But as the year wore on, it became very clear that oh, this is working. Like this is causing them issues. Therefore, let's keep doing it until it stops causing them issues. I mean, the problem before that is that literally nobody had any idea how to defend the Chiefs. It's like, what do you do? We're, we're doomed either way. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Eventually, somebody started to, we found out that this is a way that does take a little something off that offense. So keep doing it until they show that they're better at doing that than they are at the other stuff. And even if you don't have Tyreek Hill... I think you, the, they see the same defenses. Um, I do think that um, that without Tyreek Hill, the only team that didn't show them these kinds of defenses last year were the Raiders, twice. And they just barbecued the Raiders. So I don't think you're going back even with without Tyreek Hill. The offense was still very good last year overall. Just wasn't the same level that we had expected from the Chiefs previously. The overhaul in the offensive line absolutely worked. They were fantastic. Um, here's, here's my big question with Mahomes in general. Will this make him a better quarterback, not having Tyree Kill? We've seen historically, I've mentioned this a couple shows ago, I think, the, the Patriots traded Randy Moss and Tom Brady won MVP with Deion Branch as his number one wide receiver in rookie tight ends. We saw... Calvin Johnson leave and Matthew, Matthew Stafford changed his game a little bit, spread the ball around. Will this help Patrick Mahomes, you know, be less locked into just two targets like he has been most of his career? Not because he can't do it, but because those are the best targets. You should be locked into those two targets. Will this help him spread the ball around a little bit more, um, play in rhythm a touch more? He doesn't, you know, he's he could play in rhythm a little bit better, Mahomes. He's still very good when he does it, but there's certain there's certainly times when he prefers to play outside of structure. So those are my questions. But the O-line's intact. I think they'll protect him really well. Orlando Brown on the franchise tag has come back. 
The question offensively on the O-line is right tackle. They've kind of had a revolving door in camp. Jerron Christian seeing time there. Lucas Niang, Darian Kennard. Um, so we don't know who the right tackle is, but I think four-fifths of that line is looking really good with Trey Smith at right guard, Creed Humphrey at center, Joe Tooney at left guard, and Orlando Brown at left tackle. Yeah. A lot of good uh, – the offensive line was one of the best last year. They'll run the ball well enough because they did have those light boxes. That's why they were so efficient on the ground, whether it is Clyde Edwards or Lair or – Jarek McKinnon, who looked so dynamic when they put him in there. So it's not bleak with Kansas City, but there are some questions about who's able to step up. Because the bottom line is, like, that big comeback that they made against the Bills was a little crossing route to Tyreek Hill where he just outruns the defense. I'm not saying that happens in every single game, but the potential was always there in every single game for Tyreek to just, look, there's a 75-yarder. Look, there's a 65-yarder, and the Chiefs are right back in it. They are going to lose some of that aspect unless other guys step up. Their backfield is fun. Um, you got Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who was the first-round pick that was criticized at the time, but even at the time was thought, hey, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire in this offense could do insane things just because of the situation. He's never really done it, but they bring in Ronald Jones. The one thing you can say about Ronald Jones is that he does run the ball well and tends to maximize the blocking, which is fantastic given the offensive line they had. Jarek McKinnon, as you said, now that he's finally healthy, looked a bit more like the player that he was once was when he was given a big contract. And then their rookie, uh, Isaiah Pacheco, has been getting a ton of training camp hype. Like He's been the guy that's getting all the, the buzz, and maybe he could steal a job. And all of a sudden, see, the thing about the, the Chiefs' running back situation is it is an incredible situation. Okay, they're not going to run as much as other teams, but when they do run, it's massively advantageous, and the blocking is great, and yet the running backs haven't really done a whole lot. If they get a guy that actually shows up and is generating more yardage than the blocking is giving him, that guy could have a field day. We have someone in the chat reminding you that Sky Moore can also play running back, Sam. And they're using him, getting him in space with some jet sweeps and all that fun stuff. So, look, there are playmakers in Kansas City. I think they're just, they're just down the best playmaker in the NFL. Now, as we said at draft time, or when the trade happened, even if the offense takes a step back, the long-term effect of saving probably $30 million on the cap per year and the five draft picks that came back for Tyreek Hill probably give the the Chiefs a chance to just be better over time. And we already saw some of that defensively. They they had two first-round picks. You had Trent McDuffie at corner. You have George Karloftis on on the defensive line at edge. Edge was a massive issue with them last year when Frank Clark was hurt. Chris Jones, interior player, moves to the edge. He was still good, but it just it ruined the entire defense. They got crushed up front. So this defensive line, just on paper, looks this much better with Karloftis coming in. Frank Clark, our friend Greg Rosenthal, had all sorts of his nuggets from camp. He's buying into the Frank Clark, is in shape and ready to go. You know, Frank Clark has been not good for the Chiefs, for all the money. But let's not forget, he used to be a very good player. Like, he used to be a very good player for the Seahawks. He's probably three years removed from that, but if he's rejuvenated with Karloftis, Chris Jones in the interior, could be a much improved unit up there. I I just really want to see the rookies. Um, Kansas City had this draft where it looked like they were just reading off the PFF big board. You know, every player they took was a massive steal, according to the PFF big board. Now, there's data out there that says there is no such thing as a steal. When in draft terms, right? These guys that are lower, the guys that get drafted lower than the consensus would have them are taken lower for a reason, and they don't appear as steals down the line, statistically, right? Not that, you know, 
Tom Brady in the sixth round wasn't a steal, but that generally speaking, if you're looking at a board and saying all these players are value relative to this board, that doesn't become a thing. That's not a, a, a way of predicting success. So we love George Karloftis. We love Trent McDuffie. Do they work out year one? Karloftis in particular was the guy that got overlooked when it came to pass rushers this draft season. Everyone was focusing on Trayvon Walker, Aiden Hutchinson. You know, if you're going beyond those, suddenly you got to the, the kind of tier two guys and everyone like bypassed Karloftis in the middle who was like 1.5. You know, he's not in the Aiden Hutchinson conversation. He wasn't in the conversation for number one overall, but he's better than the tier two guys. And yet we just sort of ignored him. So I, I think there's a pretty good chance he steps in as immediately their best pass rusher. He's a power player. He's more of a power player, less explosive than some of those other guys. Sometimes those guys do get overlooked. But I think he's also pretty good from a sort of technical, fundamental standpoint. For sure. Like he'll, he'll, you're right. He wins a lot by power, but he wins. You know, right. He'll get pressure in a way that Frank Clark hasn't been and in a way that Carlos Dunlap might not be capable of doing anymore. I'm intrigued by the linebackers, too. Nick Bolton looked very good last year as a rookie. Uh, Willie Gay Jr. is... He's just such an interesting player. He makes some of the most amazing plays I've ever seen in coverage. And even when you just hear camp reports, it's like, hey, Willie Gay broke up a pass again. He'll be caught out of position at other times, but he just kind of like gets his hands on passes and has incredible short area range as a coverage player. I could see Willie Gay taking a big step forward. Um, and then in the secondary, you do have to lo you lose Tyron Matthew, who I think has always just made defenses better when he's around. But bringing in Justin Reed, Juan Thornhill still there at safety. Look, they could be... They could be solid defensively. And I think in the Mahomes era, that has always been the question for the Chiefs. His MVP caliber season, they were terrible, right? Every time if they'd give up 30 uh, pretty often, and those are all the games that they lost, the defense got better and they won a Super Bowl. It got better and they went to the Super Bowl. You know, they, they last, they've been up and down, you know, throughout the Spags era. So if they could be, you know, middle of the pack, I think that's always the question for the Chiefs. For all the questions we have on the offense, it's still you still expect them to be good. Will the defense at least creep back toward average and be in that in that middle tier, and that'll give the Chiefs a chance? Yeah, ultimately, I think you know they're still one of the best teams in the NFL. They still might have the best offense in the NFL. Patrick Mahomes plus Andy Reid plus you know enough other pieces means they're in the playoffs and probably winning a game or two. I'm going to go over the ten and a half. Yes. Okay. Do you think, last last question, the last time we saw Patrick Mahomes, just crazy, man. It looked like he was going to be on another epic playoff run after beating the Bills, crushed the Steelers. They beat the Bills. First half, they, they're crushing the Bengals, and it was one of the worst halves of play in NFL history mm. in the playoffs. I mean, it really was an absolute collapse, and it was mostly Mahomes in the offense. That was the collapse. Taking sacks, fumbles, turnovers, all of it was bad. Any residual effect from that? Uh, I don't think so. I think I don't think that's damaging long term to him or the offense. Like sometimes losses can do that where they they leave a mark and you don't get over that kind of thing. I don't think that's what we're talking about here. Um, I do think that it's you know again teams have gotten just the NFL generally is is a good system at evolving and developing game plans to stop whatever's working and Mahomes and a couple of other quarterbacks in the NFL are living that right now which is yeah you came in you had a record setting pace you did things we've never seen before and you just set fire to the play to the place but since that point 
we're evolving. We figured out not how to stop you, but how to at least make you uncomfortable and how to cause some problems that weren't there in the past where we were just like desperately searching for anything. And I think Mahomes and Lamar Jackson and, you know, Josh Allen, I think is probably about to run into this. Um, but that kind of quarterback is now dealing with, all right, now I need to, I need to counter the counter. That's, that's what he's dealing with now. It's, it's really what makes great players great. Mahomes wasn't bad by any, by any stretch last year, but it was his worst season combined with schematic adjustments against, you know, against the Chiefs. So the great players sustain, you know, greatness for 10 to 15 years, right? They do it for an extended period of time. So there will be some adjustments here for Mahomes and the Chiefs. I'm going to go over, though, on the 10 and a half, just like you are, right? So yep. we said? <clears throat> yep. All right, let's go Las Vegas Raiders. Another team, a lot of turnover this offseason, a lot of excitement. Their over-unders, eight and a half. And again, this, this, the, the Chargers are probably going to be higher than that. I haven't looked at it specifically. But eight and a half for probably the team that most would expect is going to be last in the division. Is that fair to the Raiders? Uh, I mean, that's what the totals are going to say, I right? Chargers are over-under 10. So just, it's not PFF saying this, Raiders fans. Everybody's expecting the Raiders to be the worst team in this division. And Denver are at 10. Denver's at 10. So the, the top three teams are over 10. 10, 10 and a half is their over under. The Raiders are at eight and a half. Yeah. So people are expecting the Raiders to be the worst team. Last year, they did make the playoffs. They did beat out the Chargers for the playoffs. It did feel like they, it, you know, on one hand, it felt like they overachieved, you know, just using simple measures, points for, points against, this and that. It felt like the Raiders overachieved to make the playoffs. On the other hand, they dealt with their head coach getting fired, yeah. the Henry Ruggs incident. They dealt with so much off the field really impressive job by the Raiders to get it together and get the defense playing better than expected except against the Chiefs getting um, a lot of pieces in place and Max Crosby breaking out there was a lot to be excited about for the Raiders last year there's a lot to be excited about this year Josh McDaniels comes in Devontae Adams comes in to be buddies with Derek Carr so there's a lot of potential for this Raiders team and the thing that could thwart it is the actual division and the teams that they have to play the division and the offensive line and the line um I, I love what they did this offseason. They were in a really tough spot because Denver go and bring in a great quarterback. The Chargers have already have a great quarterback, and they load up anyway. The Chiefs were already so far ahead of everybody else they could afford to trade away a guy and just rely on the draft and having the advantage they already had. So the Raiders are looking at this and saying, well, all right, what, what do we do? We, we can't, you can't start over from Derek Carr. He's too good. He's, we know he's capable of really high-level play, and the chances of us getting – the chance of us – Getting rid of him and finding somebody in the gap between Derek Carr and the other three guys in the division is pretty small. So let's just embrace Derek Carr and try and help him out. Like go and trade for Devontae Adams. Go and bring in Chandler Jones as a pass rushing upgrade. Um, it's about all they could do. And, you know, Adams has the potential to have the kind of impact on this offense that Jamar Chase had last year for the Bengals, which is you bring in an elite number one receiver that can win in all ways and that obviously helps the offense by whatever that addition is. But it also makes life easier for Hunter Renfro. It makes life easier for Darren Waller. It makes life easier for the, the running backs, Josh Jacobs, um, whoever they end up using primarily there. It makes everybody's life easier, including, by the way, the offensive line to a degree. Um, and obviously Derek Carr. So that can have an absolutely transformative effect. The only question is, is it enough that the offensive line can just keep its head above water because you've got Colton Miller, who's, a, who's become a very good left tackle, and then really four question marks. 
and yeah, four guys of- for the five guys that are in the mix to start or six guys there's one rookie in dylan parham we'll see if he gets a shot the other guys in line to start all below average pff grades war everything last year yeah and alex leatherwood was catastrophic as a rookie gave right. up the most pressure of any offensive lineman in the nfl um they just need they don't need that offensive line to be good they just need it to not be that bad and you know Devonte adams and the offense being better will help but it might not it might not be enough to offset how bad it can be like and again this is not like you know is the offense so bad that the raiders will stink no but is the offense so bad that they might not be able to keep pace with the other three teams in this brutal division? Yeah. If I knew that they had an average offensive line, if they could get these guys to to play at an average level, and you, you never know with the scheme change, and some of them are young. And um, But as you mentioned, question marks, right? Like when we evaluate offensive lines, it's like how many, how many are dependable? How many guys are dependable? How many have we just not seen it yet? And most of the good offensive lines have three or four dependable players. And the Raiders right now literally have one um and that's colton miller who has turned his career around so you need other guys to turn their career around like colton miller but i I also don't think i keep talking myself into the raiders over throughout the offseason it's not that far-fetched i think there are a lot of similarities between Derek carr and matthew stafford i think guys who are in the probably high third tier quarterbacks for the majority of their career that's qb 10 to 14 at any given time in the nfl i think that's a fair assessment of Derek carr against the landscape of NFL quarterbacks. I think that's a fair assessment of Matthew Stafford against the like his era of quarterbacks, QB 10, QB 11. And when you get that guy, if you do have a Devontae Adams or much like Stafford, you do put him in this Rams team where him and Cooper Cup just tr- take it to a whole new level. And you have a good offensive system, presumably with Josh McDaniels coming in, that's going to help. That's a guy I think you can, you can win with, right? Like you could take Derek Carr, let's call him QB 10, and get number you know qb5 type of production out of him especially if Devonte adams is as special as he's played these last couple of years even without aaron Rodgers, we're looking at teams have to try to cover Devonte adams and darren waller waller is one of the five tight ends that i think you know is is an absolute mismatch weapon around the nfl hunter renfro a fantastic complimentary piece my old friend mac hollins is seeing first team reps hmm. for the raiders that might not be good for the Raiders in the depth chart, but I liked Mac Hollins like seven years ago, so that's fun. Um, anyway, I, I just think we could see Derek Carr, if the offensive line can just hold up, we could see Derek Carr put up huge numbers, have a career year. We could be talking about him in the MVP race, but it is, as I've said, one of the stories of the season. How does Devontae Adams, how does a wide receiver one elevate an offense? I don't know if we'll truly see it this year just because of the offensive line. But it could be like, give the Raiders one more year, focus on the line, and next year they're going to be crazy dangerous. Yeah, I mean, but they'll be they'll be tough to beat this year, though. Thing is, that line was bad last year, and they ranked 17th in offense in terms of EPA per play. So if Devontae Adams takes 17th, you know, if, they, if he makes a 10 spot difference to that, all of a sudden they're seventh and they're in a really good spot. Um, and that's just Devontae Adams, even if the offensive line is no better than it was a year ago. If the offensive line is slightly better, I think that's eminently achievable. So I think ultimately the offensive line kind of places a cap on how good this team can be, but I think it can be really good. I think that offense in particular can be pretty special. Then the defense, the defense still has a ton of holes, but they have very good players at a couple of important positions. The Max Crosby-Chandler-Jones combination 
you know, could be one of the best pass rushing duos in the league, even if Jones is declining a bit. The decline is coming largely, I think, in just not defending the run anymore and selling out for the pass. Um, Crosby was incredible last year, led the NFL in pressures against generally a really bad slate of offensive tackles. He'll have a tougher job this year, but he looks legit. Nate Hobbs has been getting a ton of hype in training camp, a guy who graded really well as a rookie. Um, you know, they've been saying he's going one-on-one with Devontae Adams and holding his own, which is about as high a compliment as you're going to get. If Nate Hobbs turns out to be legit after, you know, year one, that's a huge boost to the secondary. You know, the Raiders' defense, I think, will be the weakest area, but could be okay. Yeah, I mean, with the defense, they bring in Patrick Graham to run the defense. It's, you know it's always tough to predict what certain defensive coordinators are going to do and easier to predict others. When Gus Bradley was there, he's the easiest to predict. So when you move him around the league, it's like, I know what he's going to do. And I know which players generally uh, succeed in his, in his defense, a guy like Nate Hobbs playing in the slot in Gus Bradley's defense. It's kind of an easier role from a grading standpoint. So that will be a test for Hobbs in a new system. But Patrick Graham, when he was with the giants, he was a guy who stitched together some good defenses without a ton of talent right without a team that um he never had great pass rushers with the giants he had he had a different style of defensive line where he was stout in the interior and weaker on the edge it's it's the it's their inverse here with the raiders um he graham got the most out of their secondary i think you know with with the giants as they um were never great there but they had some solid players so i'm intrigued by what he can do I think it's going to be tough to just have a consistently good defense, though, for the Raiders. But I think Graham has shown one-off situations like other defenses. You can kind of put together a good game plan, have some good games. They had a really good game against the Chiefs last year with the Giants. Um, and that might have been part of you know bringing him over and having a strategy to, to beat the Chiefs in that division. So I'm intrigued by a lot of what the Raiders can do. But I honestly think the biggest story here is, of course, it's Carr and Adams, but it's what that old line does to hold up up front I, I also wonder if they're a type of team if you want to win this year nothing against John Simpson and Lester Cotton and all the guys that they have there Leatherwood we have no idea what's going to happen there Brandon Parker do they are they a waiver wire cut you know type of team um, do they there, there's probably a wave of cuts around the NFL where there are veterans that you could bring in and plug and play and upgrade that line well, there's also guys available. Like, I mean, we were <clears throat> messaging yesterday when uh, it looked like Robert Hainsey might be down in the same way that uh, that Ryan Jensen had gone down. It, was just it turned out it was just bad cramps. But for a moment, you're like, okay, the Raiders or the Bucks just lost two centers. J.C. Treader is sitting out there available on the free agent market. J.C. Treader is probably still a top 10 center in the NFL. Okay, I'm sure there's a contractual reason he's still sitting around, you know, in terms of what money he wants. But... You know, you could sign players that can come in and be better than the ones you have. So what do you think with the Raiders here? I mean, the more I talk about the Raiders, the more uh, intrigued I am. We haven't talked about Josh McDaniels specifically. You've had some, you've mentioned him a lot throughout the offseason. The last time we saw him as a head coach was 2009 and 10 with the Denver Broncos. He's a different person, different coach, we assume. He's learned from completely blowing things up. You know, he's got uh, his GM, Dave Ziegler, comes over from, from the Patriots. I kind of like the direction they're going to be going. I, I have faith in the direction they're going to be going. I just don't know how much we're going to be able to see this year because of some of the holes from the previous regime. McDaniels, to me, is just a really interesting watch. You know, his previous head coaching tenure was disastrous. 
you would have to assume he's learned from that. He also, in between the last time and this time, got himself you know, into trouble in terms of PR, I guess, in terms of pissing off people in the league with the whole, yeah, I'm going to go with the Colts and be their head coach and then reneging on that and, you know, going back to New England. Like, he, he, this is a big deal for him. If he doesn't get it right this time, he's probably not getting another shot at this. So if he wants to be a successful head coach, it's now or never. Um, and you've chosen coming into this just murderer's row of a division to get that done. Okay, confidence in Derek Carr is probably a big reason he did. But I also think, I don't know how many opportunities Josh McDaniel was going to get if he didn't take this one. So I just think generally he's one, he's a guy to watch. How does he behave? How does he do it differently than last year? What is it, you know, what lessons has he learned? And then can he propel the whole thing forward just by virtue of being an offensive mind and a guy that has, you know, a good system and all this kind of stuff. Where do you land with the Raiders? Over, under, eight and a half. Yeah, I, to me, the Raiders... I think Vegas has it right in terms of one team in this division is not going to win as many games as they should based off the talent level because of the other three teams in the division. And if you're picking one, I think you would immediately default to the guy that's probably the worst quarterback of the four in most given years. You know, there, there might be a year where Derek Carr is the second best quarterback in the division. But if you were betting heading into the year, every single year you would say he's the fourth best. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the nature of player evaluation and all that stuff right like Derek Carr has been a better quarterback than Russell Wilson for the last year and a half right for the majority of their respective careers Russell Wilson of course has been the better quarterback so what does that mean for 2022 going forward so I think ultimately Vegas is right in terms of if you're playing the percentages you pick the Raiders to have the worst record of the four and be the team that looks relatively disappointing based off you know last year or expectations or whatever eight and a half you said eight and a half yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll take the under and say they win eight, I guess. I'm going to go over for the Raiders. I think, okay. I think I'm more, I'm more buying into the Raiders. I've been, I've been suckered into buying into the Raiders and kind of being down on the Broncos more. And I think you're the reverse. Well, on certainly lately. Lately. We've had six months to just dissect all of this stuff. So I've come around to being a little bit more bullish on the Raiders and bearish on the on the Broncos let's go to the Chargers where I think we're all optimistic because it's the offseason yeah well, that's and that's what you do that's where you are optimistic. with the Chargers Chargers the uh, sleeper Super Bowl team since 2006 I mean, if you do it the way that everybody else works which is you know you take last year's record and you just see where they've made additions or subtractions therefore what they, they have to be year. better well that so that's where it makes sense for everybody almost except the Chargers right look at the Raiders they won 10, 10 games last year. Yeah. So eight and a half is an insult. Denver, though, they won seven games, and they had terrible quarterbacks. So now you give them Russell Wilson. They should win double-digit games as well. The Chargers only won nine games last season. And, okay, they've made a ton of additions, but, like, they're the team if you're the Raiders and you want to be insulted by somebody being ranked ahead of you in terms of a preseason win-loss record. The, the, the Broncos, I think, make sense because they added the most important position in the NFL. The, the Chargers... They didn't. They already had the elite quarterback, and they still couldn't beat them in the, for the playoff spot. So everything has to be better for the Chargers this <laughs> year, right? Remember last year, we've got uh, Brandon Staley comes in, goes for it on every single fourth down. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. Mm-hmm. Some of them led to games where they got crushed like the Ravens because they were going for it in their own territory and not getting it. <laughs> Other games, you had the Chiefs game where they failed like four times, and everybody's like, oh, just kick a field goal, you would have won. 
before this game went to overtime. Other times it worked, but we didn't focus on that as much just because it worked. Um, so we're gonna we have an aggressive play caller. We have Justin Herbert, who just graded at 90, was uh, number three in PFF WAR last year. Built on that rookie season, he did not regress as maybe some of the data points suggested he could. He looked even more special last year. I think the Justin Herbert question is, can we tap into the special a little bit more? The guy's got an incredible arm, but maybe throws the ball underneath too much when he's got Mike Williams, Keenan Allen, Josh Palmer, who's emerged as a, he's just a big body down the field threat. Jalen Guyton can get down the field. So they've got pieces uh, at Gerald Everett at tight end. They did a great job last year, the Chargers, having their offensive line. Talk about creep back toward average. They nailed it, right? They go from one of the worst in Herbert's rookie year. This is probably a big part, Sam, of why it, what, what mitigated any regression from Justin Herbert. You draft a Rashawn Slater in the first round. You bring in Matt Filer. Bring in Corey Lindsley, two guys in free agency who are very good. So a lot of good moves from the Chargers the last year. But it's got to show up in wins. Because this year, the defense got gashed against the run. You bring in Khalil Mack. Uh, you bring in another turnover machine at corner and J.C. Jackson. A lot, of, a lot of flashy moves here for the Chargers to go with a flashy quarterback in Justin Herbert. But can they put it all together is the big question. Yeah, um, I I think the most uh, noteworthy additions to this team have been the ones on defense, or the most noteworthy changes. <clears throat> one, we expect Brandon Staley's defense to be better than it was last year. Uh, when you come over from the number one defense in the NFL as a defensive-minded head coach, okay, one that has some you know offensive history as well, but you come over as a defensive head coach, you're expected to have a better defense than they did last year. They are a team that is in a tough spot in terms of balance between what the data and the analytics says, which is running the ball is less efficient than passing the ball. Therefore, if you're defense, you should want teams to run the ball on you because it's less efficient than if they're passing all over you. The problem is if you lean too hard into that, you become too easy to run against and you start changing the dynamic there. And that's what happened with the Chargers last year. <clears throat> Along with Buffalo... They were two teams that I think leaned heavily into this idea of letting teams run on them deliberately. Uh, but unlike Buffalo, they were bad at it. So when teams did lean into the running on them, they were giving up six, seven yards of carry, and all of a sudden you start to equalize how efficient it is between running and passing on you. Now this offseason, you look at all the additions they brought in to that defense, I think all of them should change that. Khalil Mack, you know, we talk about him and what he's going to be as a pass rusher with Joey Bosa, and that should be great. But Khalil Mack is arguably the best run-defending edge rusher of the last decade. Yep. All of a sudden, he's changing that aspect of things. Sebastian Joseph Day, Austin Johnson, guys they brought in in the middle, those guys have got the ability to be much better against the run than the players they're replacing. So three potential upgrades to the defensive front – just in terms of stopping the run forget what they're going to do in the pass game that should be huge for changing that balance they might still lean into the idea of inviting teams to run on them but all of a sudden it's going to be less effective they're not going to be giving up six seven yards of carry they're going to be giving up four or five <clears throat> which is where it is <clears throat> it is more efficient uh and then obviously the splash play in the secondary bringing in asante San or uh jc jackson and what i really like about that is <clears throat> i think the conscious plan there is Let's assemble a bunch of guys that have ball skills, a bunch of guys that aren't just going to cover people or break up passes, but are going to turn it over. Because if we can get, you know, a bunch of turnovers from these guys 
it's going to offset a lot of, you know, catches that they give up. This is what's really interesting, right? Because, like, the, the analytical way of looking at turnovers is you can't you can't rely on them. They're no, unstable. They right? come and go. Like yeah. the Tra- Trayvon Diggs thing. You got 11 last year. You got four this year. You can't, right? You can't just rely on turnovers. And every like, – it's – I laugh every year, right? There's the story. Like, why do the Bears have all these turnovers this particular season? Oh, they, they practice it, right? Like, every team practices forcing fumbles and this and that. Maybe some teams practice it a little bit more, but there's not a direct correlation with emphasizing it and executing. However, I do wonder if there's a team-building strategy, right? Do you, do you turn the ball over more when you play zone or man? Zone, right? Mm-hmm. So this is one of the most zone-heavy teams in the NFL. So that's one, like, little edge if you're just trying to steal turnovers. What else can you do? You have certain profiles of players. Asante Samuel, he'll get beat a little bit, like his father, he'll get beat, but the dude breaks on the ball and makes plays. J.C. Jackson has a history of getting the ball, right? So maybe you could steal a little bit with some players. And this is, to me, this is the storyline with the Chargers. For a team that's gonna go for it on fourth down more than anyone, and for a team that's trying to emphasize turnovers a little bit in style, are they just going to steal extra possessions? So even if they get run on, even if you do get, you know, give up five yards of pop or whatever it is, are they going to be a team that's just going to have more possessions for this explosive offense? Because uh, I, I think there's kind of an analytical approach to like, hey, if we have Justin Herbert, we're just going to give him more opportunities, yeah. more fourth downs, <clears throat> more turnovers. It's a, it's a strategy that I, I'm, I'm looking forward to see if the, if the Chargers can pull this off. Yeah, I don't, I, don't think you can, I don't think you can practice your way into more turnovers. But I think if you play a ton of zone coverage and you get a bunch of guys in the secondary that are natural ball hawks with good ball skills, you can probably get more turnovers that way. Yeah, and you probably get more turnovers when you have a better <coughs> pass rush and having Khalil Mack and yeah, Joey yeah. Bosa together. Like That's there's the these, these like little edges that can add up. Um, and, and what and what happens with turnovers? The 2009 Saints, like the one year that Drew Brees won yeah. the Super Bowl, the Saints were just ridiculous at turning the ball over. You just run into that one year where you're just a turnover machine as a team, and that's how you make a Super Bowl run, right? It's tough to have – you can only put the pieces in place to have sustained success, and then they have that peak year where it all comes together. And I feel like the Chargers have all of those pieces in place to have that – to make to be good, but also have that run to the Super Bowl. Yeah, um, and if you look, you know, it, it just – it helps things so much. Like – the Dallas last year is a great example. That defense took a huge step forward um, relative to where it was a season ago, in large part because they suddenly started forcing an absolute boatload of turnovers. You know, Trayvon Diggs with his 11 of them for a start. Like, and again, Diggs was one of the best corners in the NFL in terms of the results. What is the EPA per play on passes that target Trayvon Diggs? Even though he gave up 1,000 yards. And even if you want to... You know, take a little bit of a percentage off that because of the way that we assign those stats and, you know, when you factor in the penalties as well, whatever. Like, no matter what way you shake it out, when you net it all out because of 11 turnovers, Trayvon Diggs was one of the best corners in the league in terms of the impact that that actually had on the defense. But we know that that's relatively unsustainable. It's certainly on an individual level. But what happens if you have four guys in the secondary that are all like that stylistically? Maybe one of them doesn't get any interceptions next year, but the other three might. And if the yeah. other three have a lot, then you're in good position. And if you just look last year at the, the teams, the defenses that forced a lot of turnovers. So Dallas led the league. Indianapolis should have made the playoffs. New England did make the playoffs. 
Oh, they didn't? Did they? They did, yeah. They did make the playoffs. One and done. Yeah, yeah. Arizona did make the playoffs. Tampa Bay did make the playoffs. Kansas City did. Buffalo did. Green Bay did. New Orleans. Like, these are the teams that forced the turnovers last year. It's important. The other aspect of playing, you know, the Chargers team-building effort, we've been saying this for a few years now, you're building to to stop the Chiefs. You know, for whatever you're doing, you're trying to stop the Chiefs. you got to beat the team that's been the best team in the division. Um, And you probably do that by loading up on the secondary and – uh, look, the Chargers have, don't we haven't mentioned the player, you know, who used to be number 33 and he's now number three back there. What a good looking group that is. The player, number three on the Chargers, along with Asante and JC Jackson. Bryce Callahan, another intriguing guy that's been far better, more good than bad throughout his career. Wasn't as good last season, but has been one of the better slot corners in, in recent years. I say this a lot in these shows, the pieces are in place. I mean, they are really with the Chargers, but for the tenth straight year, yeah, the pieces are in place. That's the only thing. Can they get over the hump and actually do it? Here? It it does feel like this is a good team in in good position and doing things in a smart way. You know, I criticize the Jags a lot for there being no discernible pattern to anything they're doing. The Chargers, you can see several patterns in what they're doing across the board. You can yeah. see every step of the way how it fits into the broader picture. And that gives confidence. It's, I think it's, in, it's a confidence-inspiring thing to see the strategy that somebody is trying to execute. Whether or not that strategy works, you can at least understand that everybody has agreed on a plan and is working in the same direction. Um, the only caveat is, like, this is not a new thing. Every single offseason, everybody gets hyped about the Chargers and doesn't work out. I want to see more aggressiveness from Herbert again, too. I just want to see him... There are certain games. You know, I, I think that's one of the impressive things about Herbert is he can play the short game. It's kind of like Josh Allen improving his short game and underneath stuff and accuracy and all that stuff. It's like cool that he could do it. But Justin Herbert tied for 25th with Jacoby Brissett in average depth of target hmm. last year. Just like Mahomes was tied with Tua in average depth of target <laughs> last year, 7.4. Herbert... I think I, has some there's some connections there or some parallels between Herbert and right now I think Herbert is personally responsible for a missing percentage of efficiency or level of play or how good he can be right he is he is personally costing himself a certain percentage and not quite maximizing his potential in the same way that I think Russell Wilson is probably personally responsible for a gap between what Russell Wilson is capable of and where Russell Wilson tends to play. So I think there's an onus on both those quarterbacks who, look, let be clear, are both great. Yeah. Those are both very good quarterbacks and are the reason their teams are in playoff contention. But the, the thing that is separating Justin Herbert and Russell Wilson from, A, the players that they can be and be the best quarterback in the NFL is themselves at this point. And yeah. I, I'm interested to see if either guy can get out of their own way for that little percentage. You wouldn't expect, the, for the way we talk about Justin Herbert, being tied for 20th in big-time throw rate as well last year. Well, you wouldn't expect that. the way Because we remember, like, his big-time throws are like 55 yards on a dime on a post. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and he also has non-big-time throws that are just fun to watch, right? Here's this deep comeback with just, you know, on a, on a rope. But I would try to tap into that more. I'm not saying turn the ball over more if you're Justin Herbert. Because his turnover-worthy play rate was incredible. But I, I, I sound like the, uh, the spreadsheet guy who's like, just throw the ball downfield more. But there is this element of if you're just – the same thing I've said about Matthew Stafford through the years, and I said about Derek Carr earlier on the show, and I've said about Justin Herbert 
when I have a guy that can make special throws, I want to tap into that more. And if there are some mistakes made along the way, fine. I want to see more aggressiveness. And I think that could be a big part of – because if, if Herbert turns the ball over a few more times, that'll offset by the fourth down you know, aggressiveness and the defense maybe turning the ball over the other way. Did you see – speaking of spreadsheets, did you see that the, uh, the World XL Championships were on ESPN2 the other day? What? With your uh, conditional formatting skills, you could maybe give it a run. Oh, man. For finally my V lookups and uh-huh. uh, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, you've made some pretty V lookups, behemoth spreadsheets. Yeah, have, I don't I know mean, if size. Have is they a, seen the draft model? Have they seen know. my draft model? That I, could be. I don't know if size is a is a good thing in the World XL Championships. But you probably want to take a lot of data and have it be quick and efficient. I mean, what are they? What were the goals here? I, I don't know. This I, was this is when they turned ESPN two into the Ocho. My knowledge of what I'm talking about ends when I stop talking back at the start there. I don't have any further information. I'll have to investigate the Excel championships here. Our nerd friends would be so mad. Nobody likes to do stuff in Excel. It's got to be R or Python. Yeah. But my my draft model is getting Pythonized right now. So (laughs) we're getting that, making that more efficient here. All right, where are you going with the charges? Over, under, just 10. 10, you said? Yeah. I'm buying in. they're competing for the division. It's Chiefs and Chargers at the top of the division here this They're year. They're going to win 10 as well. I don't like that. They're going to win 11 at least. People. Them and the Chiefs both going over here. thought over-unders had to be half games. And now we're getting all these There's some flat halves. numbers. There's some halves. They're going to win 10 games as well. I'm pushing this one as well. Push. Somebody should keep track. I've probably gone over on three quarters of the league here. Yeah, yeah. Steve, Mr. Optimism here. Well, that's your AFC West. Best division Best division in football? Yeah. Has to be. The NFC West is up there, too. The Seahawks are probably lagging behind. But the top three teams, yeah, maybe it's not anymore. Start with the Arizona Cardinals. A lot of offseason drama here with the the Arizona Cardinals. Actually, before we get into the Cardinals, i got to tell you about our friends over at DraftKings. Okay. they got some stuff happening here. What do we got? Well, we're going to join the next generation of fantasy football with Rainmakers Football. This is the first ever their first ever nft fantasy game from DraftKings. it's the only nft fantasy game licensed by the nflpa so now you can play all season long with millions in prizes by building the ultimate nft franchise right now everyone can get their full first full roster starter pack for free that's right free playing rainmakers is simple you buy sell bid and win player card nfts of the biggest names in the game through regular drops and auctions on DraftKings Marketplace. Craft lineups of athletes from your NFT collection and earn points for touchdowns, receptions, and more, just like daily fantasy football. So you can build your NFT franchise and enter free Rainmakers football contests all season long to compete for millions in prizes. The next generation of fantasy sports is here. Download the DraftKings daily fantasy app now. Sign up with promo code PFF. Click the Rainmakers tile and opt in to get your first card for free. Plus, play for millions of prizes all football season while building the ultimate NFT fantasy franchise with Rainmakers Football. It's promo code PFF, build, play, win, only at DraftKings. Contest entries dependent on type and number of NFTs held. Eligibility restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details. You can get George to get on those terms and conditions for Mm. us, maybe. He's good at it. Yeah, we usually just drop him in. That's a specialty here at PFF. All right, Arizona Cardinals. I got some thoughts, but what are your thoughts? Are they one? So there was all the Kyler Murray drama. Yep. Right. That was, that was a thing. I mentioned this with the Cowboys. Most teams in the NFL, like you said earlier, like my team had X number of wins and we added all these players. We're going to get better. 
are the Cardinals one of the few teams around the league where it just doesn't feel like they got better this offseason? Well, feel is the important uh, term there because that's kind of the offseason works that way where everybody looks at what happened last year and then adds to it based off what they did in the offseason. The Cardinals are the one team where you look at what they did last year and for some reason assume it's heading in the wrong direction because of the way every season ends for them, which is bad. So the Cardinals won 11 games last season. Yeah. That's good. Good team. That's better than the Raiders, who we're talking about, you know, being a successful team. It's better than way two better games, better than the Chargers. <clears throat> okay, the division, you can say that's, you know, easier. That's the reason, but the division wasn't bad last year. Anyway. But Call of Duty comes out every November. It does. And therefore, the play of the Arizona Cardinals declines down the stretch. Look, I've been harping on this for a while, but I think there's a disconnect between the big picture uh, trend curve for the Cardinals. You know, you plot, if you plot in your World Excel championships, you add the, the trend curve and you see up, 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 up. Upward trajectory. The perfect line. Yeah. But if you make it more, uh, if you increase the gradation, you start tracking it week by week, you see these dips at the end of every one of these accelerated curves. I'm just saying that big picture, this team has gone from the worst team in the NFL. They stank when everybody came in. And now they're a good team, and there's a lot of good places, and they just lock down the quarterback that plays Call of Duty and doesn't do four hours of homework. And <laughs> look, there's a lot of reasons to like this Arizona Cardinals team. Um, but everybody kind of ignores them because the seasons end so badly. And look, I, I don't, I don't want to – you can't take that away or dismiss it. I think that's an important thing that they need to figure out, it's particularly Cliff Kingsbury needs to, I think, understand and address – why this starts going south at the end of every season <laughs> if he needs to get on the phone with people the call of duty and start like push the release date back whatever it is but they need to figure out why this thing starts to decline down the stretch and honestly i think it is more of a kingsbury issue than a kyla murray issue like, can I, you guys please release release the game in mid-february or something look, i remember all the stuff we talked about that he doesn't move his receivers around and it makes them easier to defend but it also makes him like again teams I can't remember who talked about this or broke it down but like the NFL almost gets broken the NFL season almost gets broken down into a couple of different parts you start off and it's like oh wow figuring out who everybody is right the first week the overreaction season the overreaction to the overreaction and then after like four or five weeks you've got a reasonable handle on who everybody is this year and a lot of times the teams are they're different to who you thought they'd be you know the Bengals last year. Oh, wow. The Bengals are different than we thought they were going to be this season. You knew that after a few weeks. Then you get, okay, now defenses start to counter the, 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 the new reality of the league. Everybody starts to adjust. And then you get the final part of the season, which is now can you counter the counter? Can you figure out how to still be successful versus what teams have brought to the table to stop what you were doing? That feels like where the Cardinals fall down every year which is you get through the first period. Wow, the Cardinals are great. They're winning. Kyler Murray's leading the league in big-time throw rate. This thing's insane. And then teams adjust, and you get through that period. And then the final bit, it's like, well, now you didn't adjust. And, and you so got hurt. But they, would bad. they go 2-1 and one without him? Yeah, but, but it's, it's a multi-year trend, right? Sure. And I think the question was brought up about Sean McVay as well and the same idea. I was going to say, you, you were saying the same thing about McVay, even – Though they made the Super Bowl, there yeah. were definite drop-offs in performance right. second half. And the questions for him were definitely surrounded, like what happens when teams bring something different to the table? Can you adjust to that? Can you go to plan B and C and D? And, and obviously last year answered a lot of those. But for Kingsbury, I think that's the thing, is that once teams adjust to his, de his offense, you're not giving them enough problems 
or you're not giving them enough new problems to counter that. So you just get less efficient as the season goes on because you're not moving your receivers around. You're not doing anything new. So once they've seen it for six games, they're like, all right, fine, let's go. Like now we know how to stop that. Uh, part of, I think, the pessimism with the Cardinals. So I think what you're breaking down is is fascinating, right? Like, I think you're right. There are, there's, there's something the Cardinals need to do in the second half of the season. But to, to, the, all, to the same point, hey, McVay and the Rams kind of figured it out. They did it, right? So it's not this impossible task. Part of the pessimism, I think, with the Cardinals is moves like trading a first-rounder for Marquise Brown, which on the surface, when you're looking at long-term team building probably a questionable move probably a risky one right because Marquise Brown most likely wants a contract in the 18 to 20 million dollar range and I don't know if he's worth that right so you're either going to pay him more money than he's worth soon to justify the first round pick you gave up mm-hmm. or you're only going to get two years of service out of Marquise Brown for the first round pick but I would say in the short term this could do some nice things for the Cardinals offense remember DeAndre Hopkins is suspended for what six games it's six um when he comes back, we're looking at DeAndre Hopkins, A.J. Green, who's not the same A.J. Green, but he was, he was solid last year, but a little better than I expected last year. Marquise Brown as your deep threat, who you don't need to make a number one like the Ravens were hoping he would become. Um, and then Rondell Moore as your screen guy. I like that. And I like all the tight ends that they've added. So, I mean, there, there is reason for optimism. I think part of the pessimism, though, is defensively, you, you've got some holes. Offensively, I, you, you have a move like a Marquise Brown where like we kind of chalked it up and said don't love this move but I think there could be some some short-term benefit to that's it. what I mean like outside of the so the, the concerns that everybody has about this team oh look that secondary doesn't look great on paper and you know there's a bunch of weaknesses uh, relatively speaking there's a bunch of potential problems all of which was true last year when they won 11 games right despite collapsing down the stretch right like this is they did they, they won 11 games despite a cornerback room that was pretty bad on paper relative to the rest of the league and linebackers who are under who have underachieved and guys getting injured and the whole thing they drafted Zayvon Collins last year and barely played him yeah right like this this is a team that succeeded last year in spite of a lot of things going against them and a lot of problems that people are now using as reasons to beat this team down again I just think overall the perception doesn't match the reality of where we should expect the Cardinals to be where should we where should they be a good team not like a, a good team a playoff team that probably wins double digit games again and then we need to figure out if they can stop collapsing down the down the end now i the i'm not saying i disagree with you on this what's their I, win what's their over under i haven't looked at it yet um, i'm not saying i disagree with you on this necessarily but i do think it's beneficial their over under is eight and a half right see what i mean they won 11 games last Same as year the Raiders. they didn't get they didn't get demonstrably worse you know whatever about did they get much better they like they add Marquise Brown. They are, should get, presumably, contributions from guys like Zayvon Collins in year two. Like, there's a lot of ways that this team might get better in addition to the things that are concerns, but we're taking three games off them because the, the feels are, well, this is terrible. Yeah, look at, look feels, at how it ended. The feels have been bad in recent years with, say, the Steelers. Uh, I think it was go, heading into last year where they had, it's like you wasted a first round. You had offensive line issues, and you used a first round pick on Najee Harris, and you have an aging Ben Roethlisberger. How are you going to get better? And somehow the Steelers won games. But you go back a year ago, and the fields were bad again. We were talking about is Cliff Kingsbury on the hot seat, and they go from eight to eleven. Like it's the same crap. So that's where I was going to push back a little bit because Greg Rosenthal told me to push back on you <laughs> and say there is 
something to be said, for, at least from Kyler Murray's perspective, in high-level trajectory. He has gotten better every single season, even with the data. Talking about the second half decline in Call of Duty, fun stuff that people mm. have been putting online. You can look at Kyler Murray's passing grade going from 61 to 77 to 86 last year. Last year, he fumbled a bunch, so his run grade wasn't great, but he's, I think he's always sitting on that trump card where any given season, he could rush for six or 700 yards. Yep. If they choose to do it offensively, from a uh, design standpoint or just from a scrambling standpoint. Um, he still has to cut down on sack totals and how many pressures he invites and all that stuff, but even that has gotten better, much better since his rookie season at least. Big-time throw rate, as you mentioned, was close to 8%. So the special plays are there for Kyler, but more importantly, I think the underneath stuff and the intermediate stuff was better last year. You've got this slew of playmakers. I mentioned all the receivers earlier, but um, Zach Ertz, comes back max williams is still there if he's ever going to be healthy they draft trey mcbride who's probably the best receiving tight end in the nfl one of those guys will emerge draft what did i say in the nfl yeah probably the best receiving yeah i was, I was going too fast it's going too fast it was austin gale that's style right way there. too far way too fast <laughs> best receiving that's how you get an old takes exposed oh yeah yeah i would get we'll get him monday call me out um trey mcbride was the best receiving tight end in the draft 2022 draft so they got all these uh all these um options mm -hmm. receivers james connor was really efficient coming out of the backfield last year both receiving and running had all those touchdowns right because the off the, that's the other thing kingsbury's offense has done is essentially elevated the offensive line which doesn't look great on paper as rodney hudson gets a little bit older and josh jones has never really played well maybe will hernandez can step in who also hasn't played well but they should at least be average on the offensive line. So the offense, I think, will be good. And Kyler, if he continues to take the high-level trajectory of getting better every year, which he has, Cardinals are good. And I'm, I'm leaning over the 8.5 despite all the stuff. Is that your pushback? No, my pushback was you should look at Kyler. You can look at Kyler from a high-level standpoint. You're looking at the Cardinals and saying they've collapsed the last couple of years, and that's the story. I am looking at it from a high-level view and saying as a team – they have gotten better every single year. Kyler's gotten better every single year, and you can use that going forward. But that's it's not what just saying. a collapse narrative. <laughs> your pushback is backing up my point. Push back on one part of your point. Okay. Um, also, by the way, the, like a lot of the moves that people and even us don't like, they're more like uh, they're more going to cause problems down the line right. in terms of like team building and resource management, all that kind of stuff. So the Marquise Brown trade. Is that a good idea to, to, I don't want to say burn, is it a good idea to sacrifice that kind of draft capital to bring in a guy who may have a level and you're going to have to pay huge money to if you want to keep him around? Probably not. Is it a good idea to re-sign James Conner to decent money after the season that he just had? In fact, that season suggests that's the reason you don't give him that kind right. of money because you can just plug in the next guy. Anyway, they did that. Probably not. But does it make them worse this year? No might make them worse two years from now. Right. But it actually, if anything, helps this year. Like, Marquise Brown, whatever you think about him, is probably better than any receiver they would have drafted with that pick. Fair? No, that's fair. So, I mean, that's the moves that we don't like, the things that you would criticize them for, may have made them better this year. That was like, again, the, 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 the year that the, it, it, the fields were bad for the Packers was the year that they drafted Jordan Love in the first round. And it's like, yeah, I mean, they probably left an opportunity on the table to be better that year but it was more just this long-term T-building effort where you're leaving something on the table for Aaron Rodgers, but you could still be a really good team, which they were. That's where the Cardinals are right now. So anyway, my overwhelming feeling is that people are taking this thing way too far. And eight and a half feels low. They're better than an eight and a half win team. This stupid thing's loud now. 
got the wrong straw in it. It's a whole ordeal. My question for the Cardinals is still on the defensive side of the ball. They, they managed without great corners last year. But, like, their starting corners right now could be Josh Jackson, rejuvenated Josh Jackson coming from Green Bay, Breon Borders, Marco Wilson, who was up and down as a rookie last year. Byron Murphy is a good slot who can make some plays. But they were really relying on their safeties making plays, Buda Baker and Jalen Thompson. So there's questions on the back end there. They're trying to turn Isaiah Simmons into, like, the star position, kind of a hybrid, well, kind of like what he did in college, walkout linebacker, hybrid safety linebacker type of player. So, you know... They need some of those things to hit. Then you have J.J. Watt and Marcus Golden up front. Probably need one of those mid-round rookies, Cameron Thomas or Jai Sanders, to stand up to step up as a pass rusher. So he's been getting ham- camp buzz. Which one, Sanders? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's explosive. He's a good, he's a good player. So, um, what do you think? You're gonna go over on the eight and a half? Yeah, the Cardinals over. I'm leaning that way too. Over for the Cardinals. I want to see what happens with that defense. And if look, if Kyler continues his overall trajectory, they're they're a very good team. If he continues to get better, he improved in some of the key areas last year. But you do have to answer that second half collapse narrative. All right, going over the eight and a half for the, for the Cardinals. You're defending world champion Los Angeles Rams. Next up here, are the Rams going to be better this year? Can they replicate last season? Probably the biggest story of the season last year was bringing in Matthew Stafford. The the power move that the Rams made, and it worked. Mm. It worked. I, there was a point even before they win this, won the Super Bowl where I declared that it worked because it made the team better. I mean, it bridged the gap from what they were with Jared Goff and at least gave them an opportunity. Now, specifically winning the Super Bowl makes it a lot easier to justify the move as well. But just like other teams, we talk a lot about just increasing your odds and getting on the green and getting closer to the pin or whatever analogy you want to use here <laughs> the rams have given themselves a chance to to win super bowls rather than just make the playoffs every year spoken like a man whose golf shot buried itself into somebody's front yard the last well we didn't saw we didn't put on tiktok my good shots in putts true were there such things there were okay i had i had a i almost drove the green on a par four <laughs> Because every now and again, my yeah, yeah, the, nearly the biomechanics hooks frame, up. And oh, it, it just yeah. once around, uh-huh. it just—it's a beautiful thing. That's why golf is the most hateful game in the world. Because yeah. everybody has one of those around. Yeah. And that's it's like thing. I could be a pro if I could just do this one thing, you yeah. know, seventy times instead of mm-hmm. once. Yeah, that's it. That's how close you are mm-hmm. to being good. Yeah, hateful game. So I almost drove the green on a par four. Yeah, I, I, I don't and know. I had some long putts. That I hit that went that went in. The Rams, um, the Rams are pretty compelling because they won it all. They won the Super Bowl. The FM picks, the whole strategy worked uh, because they got the payoff. You, you're right. You did say that it worked anyway. My point was like, if they, if this doesn't result in a Super Bowl, I don't know that it worked. I mean, okay, they got to the playoffs. They went on the little run in the playoffs. But if they don't, if they don't get a ring out of this. Are they really much different than they were before where they were contenders anyway and they were probably going to the playoffs and then not winning it? Because um, remember, like they, they were 10-6 and six last year with Stafford. Like the upgrade got them to 10-6. and six. Really, it was the run in the postseason that transformed things. They had to go and knock off the Buccaneers. They had to go and beat everybody on their way to finally get that championship. Um, and that's what makes them a team to watch this season is that 
there's a lot of room to be better. We saw it in the postseason. If you got good Stafford for an entire run, not just Stafford putting up like mind-blowing numbers because Stafford plus McVeigh plus Cooper Cup equals fireworks. But if you get Stafford without all the turnover-worthy plays and you get him actually keeping it together for a broader period of time, there's a hell of a higher ceiling in it than we saw last season for the 10 and 6 overall record. But is that just part and parcel of Matthew Stafford and just the Rams generally? Like, the strategy works in that it gets you on the green, as you said, and then it lets you go on a run, and all you need is four games of high-end play instead of 12, 15. Um, Like, is that part of this deal, or are they capable of much more? We just didn't see it yet. Remember the flow of last season, too? Like, they were so good for the majority of the year. And then they fell off again. And this was your McVeigh narrative seemed like it came back again, right? I mean, there were some games like the turnover, the Stafford's turnovers and like actual turnovers, turnover-worthy plays, uh, much like the 2020 Super Bowl champion Bucks, The Rams had that absolute dud on prime time. Everybody's watching and they just collapsed, scored about three points in that game on Monday Night Football. And it's like, all right, well, these, this team's done. And then they, then they bounced back and they were fine. And Stafford... You know, what Stafford brought to the table in the playoffs was, yeah, against the Bucks with the game on the line, I can go deep and make this incredible throw. With, with the game on the line in the Super Bowl, you can't stop Cooper Cup and Matthew Stafford. Like, go ahead, stop us, because we're going to make special plays. I mean, that was, that was the difference between Stafford and Goff. Just because they won the Super Bowl doesn't mean it was all, all great along the way. Um, but they mitigated disaster in a few games down the stretch there. So I want to see if, the, if this offense can be a little bit more consistent. Stafford's dealing with this tendonitis issue. I have no idea if that's going to carry into the season. I will say elbow injuries generally will affect accuracy, whereas if you have a shoulder injury, you're going to lose a little bit of velocity. So if, if Stafford, who's already not the most accurate quarterback in the NFL, you know, misses, misses a few throws, will sail some and all that stuff, if the elbow does carry into the season – could be some accuracy issues that we see here. If you, in, in the, and there's no time in the season to really rest your elbow unless you just stop practicing. And then just not practicing help, you know, hurt how much you're, uh, you're effective. Yeah, like Stafford started the year amazingly. He had six turnover-worthy plays in the first eight games and then nine in the next three. So he had this incredible start to the year, and then there was this three-week period where he was just pitching the ball to the defense constantly, and everyone was like, uh-oh, there's the real Stafford back again. And then he kind of settled back to something in the middle, you know, somewhere relatively normal, and then ended the year again with a lot more turnover-worthy plays. So it was more of a, the Stafford roller coaster from that point on. The other thing I would say, by the way, if you're playing the Rams this year, you might want to bring in Mike Zimmer as like a consultant. You know how many turnover-worthy plays Stafford has in his last three games against the Vikings? I saw he had four last year. Yeah, he had three in each of the two games the year before that. Yeah, he... So that's like, that's 10 in three games against Zimmer. And that was Zimmer, and that was the Vikings D that sacked him like eight or nine times that one game where... Um, that was a fun one. So the Lions got... I think Lions, uh, Stafford gets sacked eight or nine times in the game, and the offensive line grades weren't even that bad. And it was one of those next days where people are like, why are the PF, the uh, Stafford got sacked a million times. Why is the offensive line grade not bad? Because we went, we went back to look at all the sacks and it was all scheme based. Yeah. It was all like unblocked rushers that were just, they were just out schemed. Right. And it wasn't the one-on-ones that the offensive line won. You're right. I mean, Zimmer, Zimmer was, he's a very good defensive coach who always seemed to do well against Stafford in general. Um. But anyway, like Stafford's season after the incredible start, I think ended up much more like a roller coaster, which is 
you know, kind of what you would expect from Matthew Stafford. Before then, we got to the postseason, and that's when things changed, and he went on that run. Okay. It was very good. He still had, like, one a game where he was pitching the ball right to the defense, but it was one a game, not yeah. three or four. Um, so I, the Rams are just – the, the whole strategy worked. I don't think it was an all-in for last year, the way a lot of people have phrased it, like, oh, the Rams got to win this year or else. They had to win last year to show it worked. But I don't think it was like, well, that was our window. We get one, and now we're done. They're still contenders again. Everything everything that was a reason they were successful last year is pretty much still there. There's no reason this can't last for a few seasons as long as they keep finding enough low-value, low-cost you know, cost acquisitions to patch up the rest of things. I, the Rams are going to be good. And part of, you've called it Stars and Scrubs as a strategy. That was Eric's. I coined I've you, stolen You it. stole it from Eric. Stars and Scrubs, right? Um the investment in Von Miller for a second and third round pick. You get, you'll probably get the third, third round comp pick coming back, I believe, right? Um, but you invest a second and a third for 10 games of Von Miller. Sure, it paid off in the, in the meantime. But they've still managed to say, okay, Von Miller walks, but we're bringing in Bobby Wagner. Yeah. Um, and, and then you've, they've specifically targeted positions in the draft, right? So they didn't pick till pick 101 or whatever it was. And that viral video of McVeigh and, um, you know them you know laughing about uh cole strange mm. it was because they were just like we're gonna draft a guard right around pick 100 101 yeah, yeah. whatever it was and that because we need a right guard right so again you said they do things very differently and specifically and we always say draft the best player and they're like no we're gonna we have like a few draft picks where we have to like we need a corner we need a right guard so they go in the you know logan bruss is in the mix for starting right guard it's a huge question mark right now but they feel good enough about everything else around him at the team that they can handle a mid-round guard yep. is just going to start for us this year and we're going to deal with that as a team um so that's what's always fascinating about the rams strategy you would never suggest to most teams yeah just go find your starting right guard you have to get him in the draft it's the only place to get him but the rams are good enough elsewhere you know essentially that they can that they can deal with that Joseph Noteboom's going to step in at left tackle for, for Andrew Whitworth. But there, there are more questions on the O-line now, certainly, than there were a year ago. That's a big a big move, the Whitworth to Noteboom thing. Noteboom came in for Whitworth, finally got the sort of chance to play left tackle as opposed to wherever they need him on the line on the right side more often. Um, looked really good for the time he was starting for Whitworth. But we're still talking about a really small sample size of play for Noteboom. And... That small sample size can be indicative of future performance. We might be looking at a guy who steps in and is seamlessly, you know, a, a better than average left tackle, which would be great. Small sample sizes can also lie. And maybe yeah. you just saw a couple of good games from him. And actually, over the course of the year, that's going to shake out to much more like below average or whatever. And then all of a sudden, left tackle is not a problem spot, but it's not a strength anymore. Yeah, I would say Austin Corbett leaving, Joseph Noteboom taking over at left tackle two more question marks this year on the O-line than they had a year ago at this time. Defensively, you're going to lose Darius Williams on the outside, who was fantastic, opposite Jalen Ramsey, trying to replace him with a combination of David Long, maybe. Get the great Troy Hill back. Get the great Troy Hill's coming back to play the slot outside, whatever they want to have him do. Ramsey was playing a lot more in the slot at times. You have a couple athletic uh, corners and Jacoby Durant in the draft, last year's draft, Robert Rochelle. Again, this is just from like a player evaluation standpoint, they have a type at corner. They're getting these long athletic corners over the last couple of years. Are they going to – one of them – they need one of those guys to step up. They have done a good job of when a John Johnson at safety walks, 
they have guys to replace him. They, they have Jordan Fuller and Taylor Rapp, guys from the draft to replace these guys at positions that the NFL values a little bit less. That's all part of the Rams team building strategy. Finding an Ernest Jones in the draft to, to just play a ton of linebacker as a third rounder, right? So they're giving young guys a lot of time. All the while, last year, the stat that we said using PFF war, the most non-quarterback war added to their team. Mostly because Aaron Donald is dominant, Cooper Cup was dominant, and Jalen Ramsey was the most valuable corner in the NFL. So they've got this top-heavy production where then you can offset, hey, we've got a third rounder in the starting lineup. We have a fifth rounder in the starting lineup. So I, I'm always fascinated to see how this how this plays out for the Rams. But you still have Donald up there. Um, it looks a lot cooler when you have Vaughn Miller and Leonard Floyd coming off the edge. You don't have that anymore. It's just Leonard Floyd, and you know you need a Justin Hollins to step up opposite him but the rams come in with question marks just like they did last year you know but they they got carried by their stars yeah they're gonna do it again yeah to the extent where again i think the rams are gonna be a good team they're gonna be a playoff team and they're gonna be one of the contenders this year because they have enough talent in the right areas to do it again will it work again probably not not you know what i mean like Will it work again in terms of will they back up and repeat as a Super Bowl champion? No. Will it work again in terms of they win double-digit games, make the playoffs, and are a threat to anybody again? Yeah, sure. They're over under 10.5. It's also one of those matchup type of things, right? Like when the Rams have lost the Packers each of the last two years, including in the playoffs two years ago, the Rams have beaten Tom Brady and the Bucks the last three times they've played. You know, so a lot of it's just matchup driven. The Rams... Yeah play really well against the Bucs they don't perform well against the Packers the Bucs have beaten the Packers the two times that they've played them over the last couple of years right a lot of this could just be who you run into in the playoffs and what the matchups look like all that said hey the, the Rams couldn't beat the 49ers for the longest time either and then they did in the NFC championship game they did you know get over that hump so what was that run? It was some insane though it was like six games yeah yeah where uh the 49ers and, and Shanahan. And that was even when Shanahan was dealing with his lesser team. Yeah. That they were just dominating. And lesser quarterbacks. Rams. Um, that's why, like, you, how much do you buy into trends? Oh, McVay's teams always drop off, or the Rams, you know, just can't get over, beat the 49ers. Both, like, another similarity to the Bucks, right? The Bucks couldn't beat the Saints, and then they only, they only beat them in the playoffs. The Rams couldn't beat the Niners, and they beat them in the playoffs. I don't know how much you even buy into those types of trends, but. Rams are going to be really good again. Over or under that 10 and a half? Uh, over. Let's give them 11 wins. Yeah, I'll say over again for the Rams. They'll be really good again. I, I think I think Stafford's elbow might be a big deal, though. I don't know what's yeah. going to happen with that. Big elbow guy? Yeah, I mean, I had tendonitis. <laughs> I was going to the big leagues in 08. Tendonitis, though. Six weeks. Is this something I'm going to have to deal with with the 60-mile-an-hour pitches? Tendonitis? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you probably no. That's it's a it's an overuse injury. Okay. Yeah. So I the I keep I keep hoping that one day you know down the line that the entire family will max out our uh, deductible and I'll be able to just go and get a scan on everything that's wrong. Uh, I don't think we're ever getting there, but you should get an MRI before and after. I was doing curls one day, right, and something clicked in my elbow, and it kind of you know a a an audible and b a quite uncomfortable way, and. I've determined through, you know, several months of doing weights afterwards that it was nothing, you know, major in that I can still work and, the, you know, lift things heavy and nothing collapses or falls off or whatever. 
but it has hurt almost constantly from that point on, particularly if you, like, you know, really tighten it up like this. So I don't know if we've got any doctors in the house or anyone that knows what the hell that is, but somewhere along the line, I probably need to get that looked at. But that might be, what I'm saying is that could be a... Maybe it'll pop back into place here. Well, maybe it'll pop back into place or maybe it'll, whatever it is, finally it will go and I'll have to get it checked. See, just the way you, just the way you simulate the throw gives me no confidence you're going to hit 60. I'm sitting in a chair just like miming a throwing thing. Yeah, because you're, you're miming a curveball. Miming a curveball? You're going to cut the ball, you're going to get it on the side. Yeah, what's, what's the curving part? What am I doing? You just to... want to keep your hand behind the ball. You get backspin. I can do that. I'm just, whip. Because the football is what I'm used to throwing. So this. Eh, okay, just saying, just not instilling confidence. I'm I'm not concerned. We're hitting sixty without a problem. Who's next here? NFC West. Where's my list? San Francisco. San Francisco 49ers. Are they ahead of the Seahawks? Yeah. San Francisco 49ers. A lot of hype coming out of camp here for the defense with the Niners. They're a team that started out slow last year. Jimmy Garoppolo started out slow. Then he starts to play much better football. He had this weird run of just horrible, horrible decisions. Mm. Um, ugly, ugly passes. But overall, the Garoppolo era with the 49ers, when he's been on the field, they've won way more than they lost, way better than the backups performed. That's, that's the storyline I'm looking at here, Sam. QB wins or not, whatever you want to say, Kyle Shanahan with Jimmy Garoppolo versus without Jimmy Garoppolo has been like night and day. Healthy Jimmy Garoppolo, his two full seasons when he's been healthy, Super Bowl loss, NFC Championship loss. Everything else in between, the, the Niners just didn't make the playoffs. Now, you've got Trey Lance taking over at quarterback. We've talked a lot about what he can bring as a runner. He's got a cannon for an arm. Even in his limited time, we saw him make throws that Garoppolo just didn't make. Um, at the same time, Trey Lance also likes to throw the ball to the defense and make some poor decisions in there. And then you get this incredible group of playmakers and George Kittle, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, and all his training camp hype. Super Bowl or bust here for the Niners, even in Trey Lance's first year as a starter? Um, no, I mean, not Super Bowl or bust, but I think they expect to be better than they were a year ago and in contention, right? That's why you make that move. Uh, so, like... To me, that that's the I mean that that is the story for the 49ers this year is what does this Trey Lance Kyle Shanahan offense look like? Because I am still incredibly excited by the potential of what it is. Everything that's happened in the last decade of offensive evolution from the Shanahan plus RG three period has only made the potential of that offense better and more destructive. Um, so if Trey Lance is anything other than a complete and total unmitigated disaster as a passer, this offense should be exciting and fun as hell to watch. Forgot to mention Allen Robinson joining the Rams, by the way. Yeah. But him and Cup, they're going to be awesome. Um, yeah, with the Ni- like the Niners, I-, I-, I'm- I am looking forward to seeing how much they do tap into Trey Lance as a runner. Um, the-, the Shanahan system and scheme all it tries to do is make the defense wrong and the thing that they did back in the 90s was essentially try to like cancel one of the defenders by running their outside zone scheme right it's like the oh the defensive end he's just out of the play because we're going to run boot action off this and he has to respect that that's uh, that's all the run game is is angles and and in numbers and if the Niners have created a good run game without a running quarterback 
how much do they tap into that? I mean, I, I mentioned that Kyler in any given year can you know rush for six or 700 yards if you want. I think Trey Lance could be a 1,000-yard runner if you want him to be. I think he could be up in that Lamar Jackson. We could put up 1,000 rushing yards with this quarterback if you want to run him 10 to 15 times a game as part of the game plan. I don't know if they want to go to that extreme, but the ways you can keep defenses off balance by using Trey Lance as a runner and then by having all the plays that you run off of that it's incredible and, and and we've we've always talked up Kyle Shanahan the play caller using EPA per play consistently a top five seven passing offense with a quarterback that ranks 13th 15th 18th whatever it is in PFF grade so when you separate the quarterback's performance from the offense's performance Kyle Shanahan's always elevated those guys open throws good playmakers whatever it might be so Niners offense could be scary good plus they get the best player in the NFL last year in Trent Williams hmm Le- yeah, last year. left tackle. Um, yeah, like I, you're right. the The whole idea of that offense is just to make defenses wrong every step of the way. Um, I'm just so excited by what this meshed system of run and pass together looks like with a guy like Trey Lance, a quarterback. And then, by the way, even if he's scatter shot, even if he's inaccurate, even if he makes bad decisions, the dude has a cannon for an arm. Like he can make some special throws that simply aren't on the table for Jimmy G and those throws are more important in an offense where you are going to be pushing the boundaries in terms of what you do with the run game and all that kind of stuff like remember all those plays where they run something some kind of play action some kind of like all of a sudden George Kittle there's nobody within 20 yards of him in the middle of the field that's great but now imagine like you know there's a there's a sort of throwing range, like an arc, that, that Jimmy Garoppolo can even hit with his arm based off the time that's involved in that play and the, length, you know, the, the duration between snap to setting up. That arc is significantly wider with Trey Lance at quarterback, which means you can hit more of the field, which means you can scheme open more of the field and dial up stuff that wasn't on the, the, it wasn't on the options card beforehand. Again, I'm, just, I'm so excited by what this offense can be with all the playmakers they have, with an offensive line that should be fine, and with Kyle Shanahan having spent a decade cooking this up. Yeah, a couple of the numbers that all, that try to like paint the picture of what Jimmy Garoppolo brought to the table as a quarterback and how, how good they were as a passing offense. Jimmy Garoppolo, including the postseason last year, number two in yards per attempt behind Joe Burrow. 8.4 yards per attempt. Before we did more analytics on football, yards per attempt was like the first thing. It's like, oh, that's probably the best number, you know? Just have more yards per every time you drop back. Probably the best number. Jimmy Garoppolo second, despite being sixth lowest in average depth of target, which means there's a lot of short passes. There's a lot of yards after the catch. There's probably open throws, all of that stuff. Jimmy Garoppolo, big-time throw rate, always been pretty low. 34th in the NFL, tied with Jared Goff. This is kind of the same thing the Rams were trying to do, right? Goff was really low big-time throw rate. They were still creating good offense. You added Stafford to the picture. He was able to just create more chunk plays. So Garoppolo had all those yards per attempt despite not having any big-time throws, hardly any. Trey Lance can do that. He can bring that to the table. He will add that to the mix. Um, And Garoppolo is also really low, really high in turnover-worthy play rate, obnoxiously high by the (laughs) end of the playoffs because he had a rough playoff run as far as turning it over, second-highest turnover-worthy play rate behind Mike Glennon. Really, Garoppolo is worst among all the starters. Trey Lance probably won't be worse than that this year, over five turnover-worthy play rate. 
the bar for Trey Lance to be a better passer than Jimmy Garoppolo based off last season, it's not even that high. And, and let me just say, Garoppolo still finished with a 70 grade as a passer, meaning he had a lot of positives. He moved the chains. He found guys open beyond the sticks. Um, but that was it. But that, but a lot of that was probably scheme based. I don't know how you separate though. Say what you want about QB wins. I mean, there's got to be something too. Garoppolo, when they had him, the AB analysis of the Niners with and without. You know, just like you can't say that we, we, with uh, the Saints, you know, when they lost him, they still won games. The Niners just always seem to be a really good team and win with Garoppolo. Will Trey Lance be able to, to keep that going? What do you think the defense is going to look like? I know you want to go to the defense. Yeah. Great. I think they're going to be pretty good. They, they were a weird defense. Like with anything 10 yard, ten plus yards deep down the field passes, they were one of the worst in the league. They were just another one of those teams that – game plan oriented could put together some good games they had a nice little playoff run especially against the Packers and the Niners I think the secondary is much better it probably as good as they were back in 2019 maybe maybe not as good as 2019 best since yeah their Super Bowl run adding Javarius Ward uh, Emmanuel Mosley's been a pretty decent player Dark West Denard uh, probably play in the slot Jason Verrett we'll see if he can come back again from all those injuries but God. it is probably the best secondary one of the best linebackers in the NFL and Fred Warner um, and then who do you who rushes the passer opposite Nick Bosa, your guy, uh, Drake Jackson maybe, uh, second rounder coming out of the draft. So I think they'll be good. I think they'll be good. Yeah, same. Um, I but still, not top five. I mean, there's there's a lot of hype coming out of camp. No, here. probably not. I I don't. I have too many concerns about the front seven generally. Like I think that they need a little bit more juice there consistently, and maybe Drake Jackson is that guy, but interior is pretty weak Javon Kinlaw hasn't become the player he was supposed to be which is is one of the case study examples for that risk of trading away a player and then replacing him with the pick that you got you know it works out sometimes the the Vikings went from Stefan Diggs to Justin Jefferson great the uh you know it's happened then the flip side of that is okay but the 49ers went from DeForest Buckner to Javon Kinlaw that didn't work as well now, okay, they saved the money. They didn't have to pay DeForest Buckner the big contract, but that's the risk is you roll the dice on a guy like Kinlaw and he hasn't become the player that he was supposed to be. I, I liked the move at the time, assuming Kinlaw would be better than he's been. 54 grade as a rookie. And he's had injuries and stuff. Yeah. But my point is there's a risk attached to that sure. and they're living the negative side of that risk. Even before his injury last year, 166 snaps. That's all he played, but 50 grade. So he's graded in the 50s in his two years. He's only got 832 career snaps. They need Kinlaw to be better big defensive tackle um what's the over under here for the niners 49ers niners <laughs> they're not in order here over under 10 10 because the division's good man the division is good at least the top three teams look pretty good yeah with the exception of seattle who probably aren't very good we'll get to them we'll get to them in a minute they won 10 a year ago with jimmy g i mean i'm i i can't see them losing less than that so over. Remember last year, Debo Samuel started playing a little bit of running back. Yeah. I, I just They've incentivized him to keep doing it because, remember, he didn't want it. Yeah. He was objecting to being used as the wide back without any additional you know, monetary compensation. Debo's By the just way, a special player. The man. way that they've done that is very clever. What's that? So, remember, the, the Debo didn't like being a wide back because, you know, well, if I'm doing two jobs, why am I getting more money? And, the, and also, by the way, it's, you know, reducing my longevity in, in the NFL because running back is the position is less durable. So 
okay, how do you fix that? Well, the 49ers have essentially incentivized bonuses attached to whatever rushing yardage he gets or rushing production. So you're, so in his, it's like we were getting a buy-in, right? If you get X hundred yards rushing, you get a little, you get a little bit of cheese, <laughs> get a little bonus, which is fine. But what you're, so you're incentivizing him to be okay with that. But that doesn't address is like what should be his fundamental problem with it, which is, yeah, but I'm taking years off my career, and if I use, to, if I lose two years on the back end, that's like twenty million dollars, not the five hundred thousand bonus I'm getting. Like yeah. I'm getting hosed here. Yeah, I mean the Niners, you don't want to lose his longevity either. No, but like so they're incentivized to but keep. But to him an healthy. extent, that's just part of the bargain for a player. You know what I mean? But anyway, my my point being that they very cleverly got him on board with keeping him as one of the most dynamic matchup weapons in the NFL without really having to do a lot. I think they got to get Trey Sermon out there a little bit more, to be honest. I think Trey Sermon could be pretty good at running back. Elijah Mitchell was good until they did hand a lot more of the, uh, the keys to Debo. I mean, the back. other thing about the 49ers is just a constant, like, lottery ticket of their backfield. Like, they keep drafting running backs high and then using other running backs. The other, the other question, too. You lose Lakin Tomlinson, who's been a really steady left guard in that system for Shanahan through the years. Yep. Aaron Banks, second-round pick from 2021. He's going to probably try to step in there. Daniel Brunskill might have to step in at center. Alex Mack retired. Spencer yep. Burford's a rookie that's probably going to play, and there's a couple other guys in the mix there. The interior of this offensive line is not it, – it, question marks, we'll say, right, when we talk offensive line. So you have two really good tackles. Trent Williams and Mike McGlinchey comes back. But the interior, we don't know exactly what we're going to get from them. That could be the one thing that potentially derails the 49ers as well, which is why I'm, I'm curious to see how much they, they let Trey Lance run. I didn't, we didn't see Trey Lance the runner as much as I thought last year. Not the scrambler, but the designed runner. Not as much as I thought. I thought they'd mix him in even when Garoppolo was the starter. They might not want to use him that way, but I, I'm interested to see what they do offensively over under 10 here what did you end up saying here over over as well trey lance at the end of the year is going to look pretty good what do you think statistically and like they're going to feel pretty good about trey lance at the end of the year yeah i again i think that the bar for him to clear to be better than jimmy g is pretty low and i think that they'll end up being um I think the team will end up being better because of him being in there because of all the stuff that they can do. Yeah, I think they'll feel good about Lance by the end of the year. 31 teams down, one to go. Let's go. Is that right? It better be. Did we forget your team? If, you, if we forgot your team, put it in the chat below. <laughs> Only after sure liking the stream so we get we go viral. Yeah, yeah, we got to go viral. Everybody, um, what is it, uh, pound, the, pound the thumbs up button or pound the like <laughs> button. Pound the like button. That's what, is that what the people say? Yeah. We only have 59 right now. We should get to like, there's 320 people watching. We should probably have 320 thumbs ups. Yeah. So there's a lot we... of people that are watching and not thumbs them, thumbsing up, thumbing up, thumb, whatever. Look at this. Yeah. Crush the, the thumbs up button mm -hmm. and we'll go viral. And you'll go viral with all your comments. And everybody YouTube goes viral. If you, if you comment a lot and you thumbs up a lot. It's a win for everybody. We all go viral together because we're a family here. PFF NFL podcast. Seattle Seahawks. Speaking of family. Uh, it was a family, family environment that they had, that Pete's, that Pete's built up there. The Russell Wilson era is over. Yeah. Traded. We got a camp battle between Geno Smith and Drew Locke. Looks like Geno Smith is the leader God. in the clubhouse here for the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, it's, it's a weird spot for the Seahawks. I don't know. 
what I mean, they're going to do here. Their over-under is five and a half. Yeah. That's it. Good. It shouldn't be any higher than that. They're a rebuilding team. Yes. They're a rebuilding team with almost nothing to like outside of the two receivers the two that they receivers have. receivers are so there. good. They just locked up DK Metcalf. You got both guys signed. Four years remaining for both guys, for DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. Over $17 million for Lockett. $24 million per year for DK Metcalf. They had an intriguing draft. You got you to replace both starting tackles. Yeah. You probably have two rookies stepping in there and Charles Cross and Abe Lucas. It's just tough with Pete Carroll and his age with a, with a roster that looks like they're, they're starting over. But they also, if this draft hits the way it could, you might be looking at a team that's like, all right, this is a nice little place to find the next quarterback a year from now. Why you got to keep bringing up Pete's age? Man's got the energy of somebody half his age. That's a good point. Maybe I shouldn't. Yeah, this is age shaming, ageist. Yeah, I shouldn't do that. No, particularly not at your age. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're the same age. Anyway, sadly now we are again. Anyway, well, at you our nailed age, it. You, you shouldn't be it. doing that. Good delivery. Um, yeah, look, the the receivers are still there. The receivers were already there, are still there. Um, the problem is, like Tyler Lockett, I think has shown that he's system quarterback, whatever proof. He's, he's good, independent of whatever's around him. DK Metcalf, I think, is a more up-in-the-air status. Um, we know that he's an incredible deep threat and just a physical threat, um, a guy that can just run past you at any given moment. But he was paired with literally the best quarterback in the NFL to maximize that, a for dude sure. with the best deep ball in the NFL with a propensity for those moon balls. Like nobody is a nobody in the NFL is better at connecting with DK Metcalf than Russell Wilson will be. So you have to expect that DK Metcalf suffers some kind of drop off. And then the question is, how much further can he broaden his breadth of skills uh, to take advantage of a worse quarterback and actually still be a really high end impact player? That I think is is we need to see that. Outside of that. Bad quarterbacks, regardless of which one starts. An offensive line that's probably not any good. And a defense that's lost all of the talent that made it good. Except Jamal Adams. I, he wasn't the talent that made it good. Oh, the talent that made it good? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, pass rush has been a question for a couple of years now. Uh, they've added a lot of pieces in the draft, the second round, you know, mid-rounds, that type of thing. But it's not like you're looking at... It's a it's a crapshoot of who's going to rush the passer, right? Ochenna and Wosu comes in. Uh, Darrell Taylor's looked pretty good at times. Alton Robinson, Boye Mafe's an intriguing rookie pass rusher, but nothing locked in, nothing set in stone as far as that goes. And then from a same thing, kind of from a secondary standpoint, they've you know somewhat rejuvenated Sidney Jones. They bring in Artie Burns maybe to start. Like, <laughs> it's a five way battle for corner right now with. The rookies, Kobe Bryant, are in there. Tariq Woolen is like the the freakiest athlete. Him and Trayvon Walker are the two freakiest athletes, Ever. maybe in NFL draft history, both in the same draft. But Woolen went in the fifth round because he's just an unpolished corner. Yeah. So there's just a lot of, hey, maybe a year from now, he if Tariq Woolen developed, right? Perfect Seattle corner, though. Oh yeah, and, and, um, but he's in the right spot where it's like, I, like, I think Seattle fans should be in this. Who's going to be a part of the future here? I think the thing that sort of typifies just how bad things have gotten for this team is, remember, they, they tend to draft slightly weird players relative to what everybody else thinks. And a few years ago, they draft LJ Collier at the bottom of the first round, 29th overall pick. And it's like, oh, maybe he's going to be their pass rusher of the future. 
Collier has done nothing in three years. The dude has 35 career pressures in three seasons and is still like on the roster. Like he's had the kind of start to his career where in any other team he would have been drop kicked out of the building a year ago for just being an error in judgment. And he's still there and could still be a contributing player for them this season. They, the defense has just eroded the talent level over a number of years and now it's bad. And the offense outside of the receivers is bad. This is a bad roster, arguably the worst in the NFL, certainly one of the worst. And I don't have high expectations. I also don't have high expectations for the Seattle Seahawks. Um, does Pete get his way where they run the ball even more than they did previously? <laughs> Rashad Penny. I mean, the one-two punch of Rashad Penny, who looked like unstoppable. If Penny six- stays healthy yeah. and they get that one-two punch of Penny and Kenneth Walker, that is a fun backfield. Now, I, again, I don't know what they do up front because you can. this is where it's like, the positive vibes coming out of the draft because you can look at seattle's draft and say it was was really good a lot of good things maybe they drafted the running back too high but a lot of good players a lot of picks so you have charles cross who comes in at tackle and abe lucas at right tackle who i mentioned but that position almost certainly is going to get worse than it was last year where they had an aging dwayne brown but still still good he's still a good player dwayne brown at left tackle and brandon shell at right tackle who was solid so you can like the draft. You can like how they replace those two guys, but they're still probably getting worse at tackle, right? That's the problem with the Seattle roster right here is it is just built for the future. It is built to find guys that are going to be a part of the rebuild. I don't have faith in Geno Smith or Drew Locke as a franchise quarterback. Who yeah. knows? Maybe that maybe they're completely rejuvenated. Who knows? But Geno Smith had a couple nice games last year, but you still saw some of the same issues where he's holding the ball a little bit too long and, he got strip sacked in overtime against the Steelers in part because he's holding the ball for almost four seconds. All that stuff has to get better, and it's probably not just going to get better here in like year eight of his career. So yeah, is that it? Yeah, I mean, Steve I, Largen isn't walking through that door. I doubt it, and if he did, he probably wouldn't be much of an upgrade at he this wouldn't point. Be. He could uh, probably play the slot with those guys, though. Well, since Dwayne Eskridge can't get on the field. Um, Eskridge I liked coming out Bo Melton I think is a really nice receiver that could make an impact as a slot guy I there are some players that are interesting you know on this team that are compelling that are reasons to watch but it, I mean I can't see much of a way this isn't a pretty rough season for Seattle look to the future man Quandre Diggs is good at safety I mean just you got to look to the Tariq Woolens of the world he's yeah. a fifth rounder with just incredible ab- <laughs> like size and movement skills and all that stuff but he's an unpolished corner. I mean look it's, like you're it's watching those, those guys in their development their mini dynasty whatever they created with the Legion of Boom and the Super Bowl win and you know the the success that they had was built effectively off one draft you know if you nail one draft and you get a ton of really good players that that sets up a team so okay two them is 11 and whatever 12. they're not anyway my point being that this year you can't do that because you're not drafting a quarterback so you didn't take Russell Wilson this year. You're not going anywhere in the future. But if you look at this draft and you end up with, hey, Kenneth Walker is the best running back in the NFL right out of the gate. Um, you know, Bo Melton out of nowhere is a really useful part of your receiving core. Tariq Woolen turns out to just like he flourishes into the player that that athletic freakish ability can give him as a ceiling. Boye Mafe is a really good pass rusher. Finally, you've got somebody rushing the passer for the first time in years. Um you know, if that happened at the end of the season, great. Like, okay, we didn't, we won five games, but God, we can look at this and say 
there's five or six young players here that are part of the solution, not the problem. And then we just need to find a quarterback. And by the way, we're in a pretty good position to do that because we won five games. If that doesn't happen, though, this is... Yeah, the other part of all of the how-did-we-get-here issues, you trade multiple first-rounders for Jamal Adams, yeah, who, you know, at the time, was one of the best all-around safeties in the NFL. You know, he was right there with the player in usage pattern by the Jets, ability to play. Uh, he was decent enough playing deep. He was better playing in the box. Uh, and he just hasn't fit in in this system. When, they, when they've dropped him into coverage, he's not been great. Remember in 2020, he was essentially their top pass rusher. They, they let him pretty much play kind of edge, you know, bl- uh, blitz, but also just straight up rush the passer. And, and Jamal Adams was really good doing that. But it's tough to justify that skill set for multiple, multiple top first-round players that you lost. When the rest of the NFL right now, there's a lot of first-round trades going on, but it's all for quarterbacks and receivers. It's all for quarterbacks and in, in high impact players and Jamal Adams just has not been that guy for Seattle so that's just one of the things that I think has come back to bite and why they, they also did they drafted three times in 2021 when you only bring in three draft picks the next year a year later it's tough to have a good deep roster right that's why you had to specifically fill two starting tackle spots in the draft or why you why you have to actually fill roles with draft picks and that's just where the, the seahawks are right now they could go under that five and a half <laughs> they, they go over the five and a half if pete carroll just is a is an excellent head co- like a maximize the roster head coach yeah. i don't know that he's been that guy these last couple of years but I maybe mean, he's that like he's a good underdog head coach you know what i mean particularly in that division it's going to be tough to win six or more games i think so five under i'll take under as well for the seahawks um, there are some outstanding bets. We will have a bet show. There are some Seahawks fans that are optimistic and are going to be, um, you know, pushing back on that. We might take some bets here. Geno Smith is a preseason champion, someone says in the chat. He's also like Mr. Week 17. He's also very good the last week of the season, historically. Sure. Yeah. That's it. All 32 teams completely previewed. Done. Appreciate everybody for uh, pounding the like button. Get that like button. <laughs> Smash it. Smash the like button. That's what they say. Smash the like button. It's getting worse and worse. It really is. Thanks to Manscaped, Underdog Fantasy, DraftKings, all of our friends for being here with us. We got uh, Mr. Old Takes Exposed. He's going to be here on Monday. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the way, preseason. His book right here. Full action of preseason this week. So by Monday, Monday, we're going to overreact to the preseason. Is that okay. right? Is that what we're going to do? In addition to uh, talking to Mr. Old Takes Exposed. Mr. Old Takes Exposed is going to be here. Mr. Takes Exposed. Yeah, that's a good point. Mr. Takes Exposed. Yeah. Anyway, thanks to everybody for tuning in. All of our previews. Go check them out if you didn't see the previous ones. And we'll be back here on Monday recapping all of the great week one preseason action with Mr. Takes Exposed. Remember the GoFundMe for raising money for a good cause and for, you know, pitching. GoFundMe. In a way that Steve is not confident inspired by. You're going to throw 60. You're going to do it. Yeah. And hit the like button on the way out. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. See you Monday.